Rich Moraz talks about a big mistake he made just out of the academy and working undercover. So they said, no, we're going to all take, we're going to all use, and so are you, he tells me. And they all get up and they're coming towards me now. And I look out the window and I'm thinking, there's only one place to go out that window and I'm gone because the window was open. It wasn't a two story drop because it was a slope. So it was probably about a half story drop. And I literally dove out that window, landed on my feet, took on, I could hear him screaming and hollering. And I ran all the way to Parker Center. Uh, I was just about ready to finish my three month assignment anyway. So when I got to Parker Center, they all started laughing at me and they said, you know what? You are so damn lucky. You're stupid. You broke, you know, blah, blah, blah. So my last two weeks of undercover by program, I was in the San Fernando Valley hanging out at bars. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome back, players, playerettes, to the biggest, baddest, most dangerous episode of all. Oh, no, this is not. Well, this could be the most dangerous episode of all. We just got done with a good one. Hey, I am Morgan Wright. I am one of the hosts of the most dangerous podcast on the Internet, and I'm here literally with my partner in crime. Steve Murphy, and better known as Murph. But what was that? That deep voice, was that supposed to be your your sexy voice? I'm working on my new announcer voice. I may be trying some voiceovers for television. You too may be entitled to compensation if you were run over by a reindeer. There you go. If your grandmother was run over by a reindeer. So we'll see. Right. Welcome back, everybody. Well, hey, guys, thank you again. Another week of fun and sun. Well, for one of us, son, Murph down there, tanning his spindly Mm -hmm. white legs. My bald head. Yeah. My bald, bald head. head. <laughs> yeah. I thought we got on the uh, we got on the uh, episode this morning because we can see each other on video. And I said, hey, did you get a haircut? And he goes, no, it's just falling out. Just more it's, falling out. More falling out. Well, hey, guys, hopefully you guys enjoyed the last episode. We're going to talk about that in a second. Before we get started, though, just some quick housekeeping. Remember, Apple and Spotify both have rating systems now, five stars. Head on over there. You know, and we just hope that you guys would enjoy this enough that you'd rate us at five stars. Let us know what you think about it. We keep trying to bring you the most biggest, baddest episodes of all, so hang in there with us. Also, head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Everything we got there, we got our book list, and trust me, we've got some good books coming out. Some of the folks we've just uh, talked to, in fact, we've got one coming up, uh, one of Steve's friends, Jimmy Capra, no relation to the uh, famous film director, Frank Capra, but, you know, (laughs) who knows? He's got five books, you know, so that's pretty cool. So we got some good stuff coming out. And the other thing, too, merch, we actually had a uh, Katie Jacobs, one of our folks from over on Patreon, said, hey, we ought to update our merch. And I think we will do a, I think we will do a big update on merch because we've got, you know, some of the new logo we've made improvements. Mm-hmm. But she said we ought to get shirts that said, sit down, strap in. What do you say? Hold get on in, and shut in, up. Get in, sit down, shut up and hold on. I like that. Yeah. So we'll, we'll put that on there. And also, uh, you know, welcome to the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all. And then we'll put on the back game of crimes. Maybe we'll put that on the front. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But anyway, we'll be updating our merch as we go along. Also follow us on that thing called social media at game of crimes on Twitter at Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be is patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We just launched a new episode, which we've already gotten a ton of great feedback on. It's called 911, What's Your Emergency? And I surprised Murph with a 911 call. That's what we're going to do on a regular basis. I'll play real 911 calls attached to real cases. Mm -hmm. And then he's going to weigh in and we're going to determine 
Is the caller truthful or deceptive? And basically, we're trying to find out, are they involved or not involved? Is it a real crime? You know, are they the real victim or are they the suspect? So that was fun. So we had some we had some fun with that. And actually, you did pretty good your first time out, man. You caught a word that even I missed, and that shows you why you just can't trust the transcript. Trained criminal investigator. I know nobody believes it, but hey, still got it. You got it. You got it. You got it, man. You know, hey, look, when you got it, you got it, as they say. So where can people find that? Is that on Patreon or can or is it available other places well, as well? Well, I tell you what I think we're going to do. You know, I think this is this being a new episode, I think what we're going to do, we always want to give you patrons first shot at all of this stuff. So I think we'll take that first episode. We'll make the entire thing free to everybody. We'll put it out there on the interweb. So if you're listening and you're not a member of Patreon, here's what you're going to be missing because we're not going to do this again. We're not going to give a free episode like this. Now, we did with over Christmas when we reviewed the greatest Christmas movie ever made with Rick Massa, our buddy from LAPD SWAT. That was cool. He maintained his reconnoiter, yeah. and we talked about Die, die Hard. <laughs> We're still trying to figure out what the hell that is. You know, when he posted on Facebook uh, that he uh, – I think it was 50 years ago. It was when he said he got his badge. And, I, you know, so I he was he was talking – it showed retired police officer. But 50 years ago in uh, uh, December, I think it was, he got his badge. I said, just, you know, remember to maintain your reconnoiter. One of the worst <laughs> lines out of that movie. I love it, but except for that line. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But hey, but that's where you need to be. So that's what we're going to do. Head on over to paypal.com if you want to just donate a pause, slight, you know, if a pause for the cause, just throw something our way. Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes. Whatever makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you even more exciting content. But hey, before we get started, we have our standard disclaimer, but I just wanted to talk real quickly. Last week's episode with Aaron Graham, I thought. Aaron, we're going to have to have him back because Aaron's mm-hmm. got a lot of run and gun and shoot him up stuff that we can talk about, which we've talked with a lot of our other guests. But I thought he is doing one of the most important jobs out there right now, and that is finding these people who are counterfeiting medication because it does two things. First of all, the worst thing it does is it robs people of the medicine they need. And the second thing, it puts money in the hands of terrorists and cartels. And that's definitely where we don't want money to be going to. Absolutely. And it's and you'll hear in the interview, it, it creates a scenario for the perfect murder, believe it or not. And you have to listen to the episode to figure out what that is. So a little teaser and to get you in there. We're not going to tell you what, and we don't advocate <laughs> committing the perfect murder. But, true. Um, true. But this is, but this is actually, but you, this is one way you don't target somebody like this. But this is how homicides actually happen. To your point, this is how people die because they think they're taking the real pill. People think they died from the disease and not from the lack of efficacy of the drugs that they were taking. So, well, that's a um, big word for you, efficacy. Wow. I'm surprised you could repeat it. So, <laughs> I looked of course, it I sent it to you 24 hours ago. I said, Murph, I'm going to use this big word, so you know, practice on it. So you did good. Hey, pal, I'm, I'm proud of you. So, but remember, ultimately, we are a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but we never take ourselves serious. And if you're a new listener, hang on because you're going to find out what we're talking about. And why don't we take ourselves seriously? Because guess what? It's time for oh. Everybody, it's time it's for, time for small, small Town Police Blotters. Oh boy, we've got some good ones. we got a couple that come from some of our peeps out there, our players. This first one comes from Heidi Overman off of our Game of Crimes fan page. Now, I think somebody else might have sent this in to me, and if I missed it, if I missed your name, let me know, and I will give you credit also on the next episode. But, hey, Steve, you know, I'm a farm boy. You kind of grew up, you know, in the rural area, too. You know, so one of the things farmers have is they have lots of cows, right? Yep. So a farmer had no idea his cows fell out of his trailer and onto the highway. Sun Prairie, 
Wisconsin, population 34,661. Salute. Salute. So guess what? A bovine, they call it a bovine blockade on U.S. Highway 51 surprised not only drivers, but also the cow owners. He was going down the highway, didn't realize that the back of his gate opened up and three cows bounced along the highway, got injured. Oh, um, and he was Because he was going 55 miles an hour. So they suffered injuries just so none of you folks get fur clamped out there. All the cattle recovered just in time. To be turned into hamburgers, Woo-hoo. so we, you know, so they they used they used the yellow crime scene tape to create a corral. It rounded these guys up. Uh, farmer said, "Yep, those cows are mine." Uh, you know, I, I felt bad for the guy because farmers they they truly love their you know, animals. They truly love the land. But um, he didn't violate any laws. But I just <laughs> bouncing cows that bovine blockade. Holy cow! I mean, one, you know, fifty five with uh, a load of cows. He must have had a nice truck. Yeah. Ugh. Well, well, must have been nice. Uh, you know, I, I would just—I would hate to be the responding officer to that. <laughs> oh, what boy. the hell do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> ride it, son, ride it. By the way, hey Murph, I found this one though too. I thought shit happens at Walmart all the time. Woman accused of trying to buy an infant at Walmart. I for heard that. Five hundred thousand dollars. This comes out to us out of Crockett, Texas, population six thousand three hundred and eighty-five. Salute. Salute. <laughs> All right. A Texas woman was arrested inside a Walmart store where she's accused of offering another shopper $500,000 to buy the woman's baby. Rebecca Taylor, 49, was charged with the sale or purchase of a child and was released from the Houston County Sheriff's Office on a 50000 bond. They say this occurred at a store in Crockett, Texas. The two women were at the self-checkout line when the mother of one baby told police that the woman commented on her son's blonde hair and blue eyes and asked how much she costs. Of course, you know, we've joked about that, too. I was mm-hmm. never serious. Mm-hmm. According to the arrest affidavit, the mother initially laughed, but the woman said she had 250 grand in her car. The mother waited for the woman to leave the store. She waited in the parking lot and screamed at her that the offer was now $500,000. Mm-hmm. They did have video, and they said, yeah, she did it. You're going to jail, bitch. And you rightfully <laughs> should. Uh, holy cow. What the hell? Who the hell she thinks she is? Just because she's got money. She's going to go buy a child like that. Good Lord. Uh, I, I would have gladly sold you some of my kids, I think, back in the day. <laughs> hell, I might have given you some of mine. <laughs> you might have paid. I'll tell you what. Somebody said, what happens if your kids get kidnapped? Hey, a couple hours with them. You will be paying me to take them That's back. Right. That's Trust right. Trust me. Yeah. Hey, this next one comes for us, and hopefully I don't butcher the name. Mikey Blaming. It's M-A-A-I-K-E-V-L-A-E-M-I-N-C-K. Mikey Vlamic, or maybe Mackie, came to us from our Game of Crimes fan page. This is an oldie but a goodie. Um, according to uh, Mikey, it says, The following reports were Friday, filed Friday by the Lee County Sheriff's Office. Steve, a General Roberts Trail Lake Pio Mingo man, this is out of Wisconsin, I believe, said his neighbors are knocking on his windows and doors at night. They also go under his house, poke a stick through the floor, and move his clothes around. He said he stopped doing meth about a week ago. His, his former dealers are mad at him over $10. So they come to his house and mess with him. And what did they do? Last night while he was working on a project, they moved some small bottles around in his kitchen. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Those tweakers, man. Oh, my God. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's Pinocchio's little guys coming in, you know. They're, they're going to make him some shoes and, and all that. Oh, what an idiot. Kids, don't, don't do meth. That's what we keep saying. Just say no. Don't do meth. <laughs> Hey, and normally this is the point where we have, you know, what year was it? But Steve, I'm going to mix it up on you because I thought of a new 
segment we could put in here. And this one's actually kind of fun. I got the idea from Caitlin Gonzalez. Uh, she sent this to us via our Game of Crimes Instagram page, which is at Game of Crimes Podcast. And I thought, hey, it's kind of one of those ask me anything or ask us anything. So, hey, here's a quick question. Okay. We'll answer this. All right. All right. And I think it's a really great question. I was curious from a detective point of view, as an avid listener of true crime, there's often one consistency in missing person murder cases. When you reported, you were always here. It was brushed off as a runaway. Why is this done in so many cases? I assume there are more runaway cases than we made aware of. But if they have no record or show plans for the future, why is it such a commonality? You know, and this is kind of a serious question. I mean, we're kind of having fun, but you know, but we will answer it more in depth, I think, later. But uh, the real quick answer is. Believe it or not, when you go to the National Center for Missing Kids, um, so many kids are reported missing and they're recovered within 24 hours. But the lesson they learned is you got to take action on the kid right away. There is no such thing. There is no law anywhere in the United States that says you can't report somebody missing. You have to wait for 24 hours. That is fiction. But Steve, I think part of it was um, that was kind of the way it was done back then. I mean, we just we didn't realize way back when is the extent of the number of missing people uh, and missing kids that truly were victims of crimes until, you know, much later. You know, and I'll have to admit, when I was a uniform cop back in the 70s, it, uh, if you got a report like that, we would look at the age of the child. If it was a teenager, yeah, we didn't quite, quite honestly, didn't take it quite so serious because he's probably out with his buddies or, or a girlfriend or, you know, just experimenting with a, a, an overnight bender. But if it was a young child, you would get on it immediately. Immediately. Uh, but you're right. That's and that's a myth that they started on television that, you know, you have to wait 24 hours. That's that's BS, folks. Well, so that was the ask. Look, we'll go into more depth on this, you know, uh, during an episode, Caitlin. But I thought that was a great question. So it's kind of an ask us anything. So, hey, so uh, I want to see there's no wrong answer to this, Murph. So you're not 0 for 19 now. I mean, you <laughs> did get two right in a row. So hey, anyway, guys, hopefully we enjoyed that. We're going to try and figure out it. We're going to be mixing some things up in this new year. But let's speak of really mixing it up because, Steve, this one, we really have mixed it up. Normally, um, a lot of people might think that because you and I are former cops, you know, you cut us, we bleed blue, that we're always just going to be on the side of cops and never say anything bad, which is incorrect. We've called out a lot of bullshit. Mm -hmm. But this episode, I think, is going to be one of the most interesting Simply just from a professional point of view is we've got a captain named Rich Moraz, which you helped line up. He was the captain. If you guys have watched Training Day, which we reviewed on our Narcometer with Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke, this is the actual scandal Training Day was based on. This <clears throat> is the case. And this guy was the captain at Rampart Division when it was going on. And he's brutally honest about what went on, Steve. He was. And, and you know, first of all, a big shout out to our friend Mel Sosa, who's an investigator with the district attorney's office in Southern California and San Diego. Uh, Mel, he runs the Southern California Gang Conference. And he's an old friend. And he made the introduction to us for us to Rich. So thank you very much, Mel. You're a hero in our eyes. Um, but you're exactly right. And we got challenged. Remember, somebody challenged us that, oh, you guys are always showing how brave the cops are, but what about all the bad cops? Well, you got to listen to this episode because we're going to show you just how bad they were. It's horrible. And that, that movie with Denzel Washington, we critiqued that on here. You know, it was, it, it was a lot of it was unrealistic, but wait till you re hear Rich's story about what really happened. It's amazing what these guys were getting away with back then. And you know what? They got their justice in the end. And that's what we're all about. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. And these guys, a lot of them went to prison. Some of them went to prison. Some of them got fired, as they should have. But what you're going to find out, we pull no punches on this episode. But, Steve, the only way you get get, get to the episode 
and soon to be the title of one of our new pieces of merch, let me ask you, <laughs> are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes? This is a special one, ladies and gentlemen. You're not going to believe some of the things you're getting ready to hear. So get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Bring on Rich Moraz. Well, hey, folks, we've told you that we're going to get everybody from all sides, and we have got, you know, this one is not going to be our normal story. So rather than have me just go on about it, let's welcome to the show retired LAPD captain Rich Moraz. Rich, welcome to Game of Crimes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor for me to be here. Talk to you guys. Well, you say that now. Wait till the podcast is over. You may rethink that. So, <laughs> Okay. I don't think so, but... Thank you. And, and, and the funny thing too is during the pre-call, Rich, you, you know, I threw out a couple names like Mike Felix and stuff. You know, and we talked about Charlie Beck, the the chief and stuff. You know, and it's like uh-huh. even with a large agency like yours, and I'm out here on the East Coast, it is always such a small world in the law enforcement community, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's amazing how how we're connected and not even realize it. And I, I think that's why we have probably the same values, see the world the same way. Yeah, and Very we, true. you and I both have our hair where Murph's losing all of his, so we both got something in common yeah, too, man. You got a great that. head of hair, <laughs> but I have something special from Oregon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we we got to work on your your game there, Murph. Hey, well, Rich, you know, normally, you know, we always say, "What the hell got you into law enforcement?" And you had such a unique story. I do want to talk about how the hell you got into law enforcement, but yours goes back uh, when you were pretty young. So. Tell us about your first interaction that you remember with law enforcement, because it involved your family members, I think uncles and cousins and, you know, folks like that. Yes, yeah, it, it, it is. I have a very large, uh, not only law enforcement, but uh, family, but also a lot of us are gang members as well, but we still love each other. Oh. Which gang? Uh, Vario Nuevo Tiny's, 18th Street, just a lot of the East LA gangs, White Fence. Um, yeah. So we, we uh, have, have my... Cousins are gang members. The other half are cops. And uh, how does our... Thanksgiving dinner go? Do well, you, we check, does everybody we, check we, their weapons oh, at yeah, the door? We check our guns in at the door. We hug each other. We love each <laughs> other. Uh, you know, we, we turn our pockets inside out, and we just have a great time. <laughs> are you in charge of patting the guests down? <laughs> uh, half of them. There's so many. <laughs> we, we, we rotate that. <laughs> uh, well, well, tell us about that. You know, you, you were growing up and like I said, you got a lot of, a lot of family involved in law enforcement. Who were they and what did they do? Oh, just uh, a lot of aunts and cousins, cousins, uh, both sides, my mom and my dad. My dad, uh, he was born in 1899. If he were alive today, he'd be over 100 years of age. But um, as far as law enforcement is concerned, uh, it, it really started when I was about six, seven years old. And uh, we got our first TV and we started watching Dragnet. And I remember how excited my mom and dad would get and I would get, and, you know, Jack Webb and all that stuff. And then at the same time, I had one cousin who was on LAPD. His name was Dick Dominguez. And, uh, and he looked Dragnet style. Every time I saw him, he'd have a suit on. And a hat tilted sideways. You know, this was the uh, this was actually about 1950, 51, 52. And uh, so whenever uh, we'd go visit my cousins, he it seemed like he always had a suit on. And I knew he was an LAPD detective. And I noticed how my dad would, you know, immediately gravitate towards him and talk to him. And and um, and my then they'd have a private conversation. It got to the point where 
as we continue, as I continue to get watched Dragnet, um, my cousin, Dick, he was a detective. He was a juvenile detective. And he and his partner would drive their plainclothes car to our house there on, on Lee Street on East L.A. He'd park it in the driveway. And uh, I would be with all my, my buddies. And he'd salute, you know, um, say hi to me. And, and I was all proud. And then he'd go in the house and they'd hug my dad. And the three of them would sit. And I think they shared a glass of wine. And, uh, but my, my uh, duty was to sit in the police car and listen to the radio. And he gave me his call letters. And he said, if I get a call, you guys, you have to come in and, and get me so we can take off. And uh, so with that, I became in charge of the car in the driveway. And only I could get in it. All my buddies wanted to get in it with me. I said, no. You <laughs> hey, do you remember the, the call the, sign? Remember the call letters? Uh, it was it was 4W something. I don't remember the number, but I know it was 4W. It had a W on it. Do you know, how was that? Because I know that you guys have different designations based on like which sector you're in. Did four stand for a certain sector or a certain substation or headquarters or something? Yes. Um, each division of LAPD has a, has a number. In fact, the smaller the number, just the history part, the older part of the city you're in. So all the cars in Central Division, detective, patrol, uh, whatever the case may be, started with a number one. And uh, Hollenbeck, East LA, where I grew up, was number four. Uh, in fact, Rampart Division, which didn't exist back then, obviously, was was number two because when Rampart was created, they took half of existing central, created Rampart, and that became number two. So uh, all the designation of all the cars throughout the city, depending on which division, had a, a number that uh, designated where the division was from and how old part of the city was. And what did W stand for? Anything in particular? Uh, uh, yeah, that was uh, found out later that that was a, a plainclothes detective car. As as uh, they got more, as we got more sophisticated, the juvenile cars took the letter J, so it'd be four J twenty. But uh, that was years later. But up to that point, it was a it was a W. So you're listening for like four William twenty five. Yes, and and I remember I memorized that number. I sat behind the steering wheel. Uh, I wouldn't let anybody get any closer than the 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 what do you call the the little step board on the side? Yeah, the sideboard the there. Yeah, the yeah. sideboard, the running board. Yeah, there, <laughs> that's it, the running board. And uh, and they would come. You know, if I get the first two or three times, maybe once a week, they came, no calls, and then they would get up and they would stretch and put their hat on and they hug each other. They'd hug me, get in their car and drive off. That, and, the, uh, w stood, just, the W and the call sign stood for wine. They were inside having a glass of wine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Or wine of uh, 22s. <laughs> and, uh, and, and one day they got a call and man, I, I, I heard it and I was frozen. And all my friends started hollering at me like, go, he got, they got a call. And, and I was immobilized. <laughs> and finally they put, almost dragged me out of the car. We ran in. And told him, and they calmed us down and said, "Okay, we're fine." You know, put the hat on, hugged us, and drove off. And I'll, I'll never forget the feeling. Um, and of course, my dad would always brag about. You know, I hear conversations. He would, when he would talk to friends, he said, "Well, I got a, I got a nephew who's uh, LAPD. His name is Dick Dominguez, and boy, would he shine when he would talk." And that that really had an impression on me. I wasn't thinking being a police officer back then, but I just remember. Uh, how I felt and how he would look and how he would talk when he talked about my cousin. On hey, LAPD. Rich, back in the day, though, when this was going on, there weren't a lot of Hispanic police officers. So even though the city, you know, has grown quite a bit to be a, a Hispanic police officer, that was 
I don't want to say a rarity, but that wasn't very common at that point, was it? No, absolutely not. In fact, um, I would say that back then, uh, and based on my research, about 92% of the LAPD was uh, was uh, Caucasian. We had a small percentage of Hispanics, a small percentage of Blacks, few Asians, and um, just a small percentage of females. Yeah, well, I remember the one Adam 12 or the dragnet ones, the policewoman with the skirt, you know, and it, it was all different. It wasn't, you know, it was it was definitely a different time. It was. It was a completely different time back then um, in terms of, you know, policy, public perception. Uh, I think dragnet played a huge role from a PR standpoint for LAPD. William H. Parker was the chief back then. Um and he approved the Dragnet program. In fact, a little side story. Uh, Parker uh, was a legendary chief. He was our chief for 17 years, William H. Parker. He revolutionized police. He created internal affairs. When he became the chief, uh, there was a lot of, uh, prior to becoming a chief, when he was a lieutenant, there was a lot of corruption on LAPD. And when he became chief, he changed everything um, in terms of, uh, integrity, how we dealt with the public, how we were configured. Um, so when he was approached for Dragnet, uh, Jack Webb, in fact, uh, badge, they wanted to make the badge 711. You know, the badge number for Dragnet? Yeah. What is it? Oh, uh, gosh. Um, 714. 714, okay. okay. Yeah, 17, when Dragnet starts, LAPD badge 714 is, is prominently displayed. Well, when Jack Webb presented the program to Parks Parker. Um, he chose 7-Eleven. And he, Parker immediately uh, reacted to that, said, absolutely not. That's gambling. Seven, you cannot change the number right now or there's no program. And on the spot, he said, how about 714? He said, that'll work. And that's has been bad 714 ever since. So 7-Eleven was what, the penal code for gambling? The 711 was just a number that, for whatever reason, when he said Oh, like rolling dice, you know, rolling yeah, like 7 dice, come 11, yeah. And, okay. And, uh, and the story goes that Park, Parker immediately rejected that, threatened not to have a program. That's how strong he was. And on the spot, Jack Webb changed it to 714, and that's how that badge was created. How about that? <laughs> and everybody and, knows it's 714. And it's still Parker Center, right? Still part, no, no, it used to be called Police Administration Building when the chief was still alive. Parker Center was a brand new building. That's what I mean. It's still called Parker Center to today, right? For the, well, the main uh, building, or did it, it change? It, no, it changed. Uh, Parker Center lost the name Parker Center. Uh, I'm sorry, Parker Center was created when, when uh, Chief Parks, Parker died. It was, police, it was called PAB, Police Administration Building. When, when Chief uh, Parker died, passed away, they changed the name of the building to Parker Center. And it remained that way until, you know, that building doesn't exist anymore. It, uh, it's demolished. There's a new police headquarters um, still near First and Spring. And that's, uh, that's just called the police main headquarters. The Parker Center name went away. Yeah, that's that, that was so legendary. I was actually got a chance back in, uh, I think it was 2010 or 11 to visit the new building. I was down there for a meeting. Uh, you know, some folks and uh, got got the chance to go down there. I mean, it's a pretty building, glass, you know, just very nice. But the new uh, one, yeah. yeah in fact, Parker one. Center used to be called the Glass House because it had a lot of windows in it. 
And yeah. uh, part of the vernacular back then, in the old days, they called it the Parker Center, the Glass House, um, the the Gray Bar Hotel. Because of the, the jail that it <laughs> to had. To jail. Hey, what was the main floor, too, for all the brass? So if you got called not only to Parker Center, but was it the 11th floor or 10th floor? What was the one where the chief was on and all the brass? In the old Parker Center, it was the 6th floor. That's where all the brass was uh, in the old Parker Center. Right. The new one now, it's it's the top floor. I think it's the, I'm not real sure, 11th floor or something like that. That's why I said, so if you get called there, they say, you know, somebody on the 11th floor wants to see you. You know, either you're getting promoted or you're in deep shit. Right. Or if you're in the elevator and the, and the sixth floor uh, uh, light goes on while you're in the elevator and it stops because uh, the eighth floor was the cafeteria, you held your breath because you didn't know who was getting on but uh, you you were on your best behavior for at least two floors up or six floors down (laughs) (laughs) oh man so so uh how did you go then so you're watching your uncles and stuff so tell us about i mean you had a couple things happen to you too growing up that kind of also tilted you towards law enforcement so what was that rich i mean the things as a young i mean young kid you had one of the worst things that can probably happen to a kid you know, uh, uh, as far as um, my connection to LAPD, uh, starting with my cousin Dick Dominguez, uh, his one of his uh, his brothers, Gil Dominguez, then joined the department. So everybody talked about the two Dominguez brothers on LAPD, and um, so I, Dragnet, of course, was was very popular. Adam Twelve followed, continued to look at that program. My senior year in high school my father committed suicide Mm. and it totally, totally devastated me Mm. so much so that I I couldn't even talk about it for quite a few years. And it totally immobilized me. Um, I graduated from high school. I went to college. Um, In fact, I thought, well, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a coach, like a football coach. I still was kind of struggling what I wanted to do. And uh, I, when I, I was approaching 20, 21 years of age, it dawned on me, you know, I said, what would he be proud of me doing? And that really motivated me to become an LAPD police officer. In fact, one of the other sidelights of that is when he passed away, I was just completely in shock. Uh, it was totally unexpected. And um, uh, he was he was had a work ethic that was unbelievable. He worked for U.S. Steel for over 40 years. I think that impacted me as well. I worked for with LAPD for 43 years. Hey, Rich, he, did you come to learn why? Uh, yes, he, he you know, and I struggled with that because uh, every morning he went to work. I went to school. That morning he left. Uh, I left, had football. We, in fact, I came home for lunch that day. Um, if I can share this part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, I, I had two of my friends. Uh, we, we, one had a car. We. We drove to my house for lunch and I noticed his car was in the driveway and I thought, what's he doing home? I thought maybe we, cause I normally go up the driveway where my bedroom is because I live, I sleep in the back of the house. We couldn't go up the driveway. His car was blocking it. So we went in through the front door. Uh, I didn't have a key to the front. So I actually had to knock. He opened the door and he was immediately upset. Like, what are you doing here? What are you guys doing home? And caught himself. Because uh, and he then he started joking around. He hugged me. He told us to come in. He made us lunch, um, chorizo burritos, and really good mood. And as we're leaving, 
to get back to school, I always would kiss him on, on the cheek. He'd kiss me on each cheek. And as my buddies are going down the stairs to back to the car, he, he got a hold of me, kissed me on both cheeks. I kissed him and he just held me tight. I mean, really, really tight to the point where I started getting a little embarrassed, you know, like, okay, dad, that's enough type of thing, you know, and because um, obviously he knew what he was going to do and I was totally unaware of it. And that's the last I saw him alive. I went back to school. We had football practice. I hurt my wrist, came home a little bit late. As I was walking up, I took the bus to my house. I noticed uh, a lot of people across the street, next door neighbors. Um, they were all looking at my house. Uh, I saw a police car on the driveway by now behind my dad's car that had been moved back, actually. And uh, as I'm approaching the house, I could hear people saying, here he comes, here he comes. Realized now they were talking about me. As I'm walking up the driveway to go to the back of the house, a sheriff intercepted me at the top of the driveway and he told me to stop. You can't come back here. He asked me who I was. I said, my name is Richard. He said, oh, are you Richard? I said, yeah. And he ran to stop me. Unbeknownst, found out later, my dad was actually in the backyard where he had shot himself. He didn't want me to see that. I went in through the front, heard my mother and sister crying. Uh, was confused what happened. They told me. I was. I remember I, I glanced at him at that point. Um, and I was so immobilized, I went into the living room and I sat on the couch, not crying, not anything. I heard somebody coming in, running up the stairs. It turned out to be my cousin, Dick Dominguez. I mean, uh, Bobby Dominguez, who was the third Dominguez who would eventually become an LAPD officer. He wasn't on the department then. Um, he saw me. He came up to me. He hugged me. Uh, I, that's when I let it all out completely just let it out uh never forget how he held me what he said to me uh, and then so when he became an lapd officer about two years later that was the tipping point now we have three dominguez cops on lapd and i knew then i want to be an lapd officer i uh, wanted my dad to be proud of me to talk about me the way he would have talked about my cousin um, I, I i passed everything six months before i turned 21 i was good to go and I had to wait, actually, until I actually turned 21 before I got into my academy class. Well, and you mentioned something, too. You you said that the sheriff's office stopped you. Actually, so where you guys were living at the time was actually um, in, in the county, right? It was covered by the sheriff's office where it's now. Is it now within L.A. Uh, city? Yeah, no, it's still city. It's city. It was called City Terrace. Um, it's still L.A. County. It's still patrolled by the sheriff's department. Viscalou Center, their academy okay. is right close to that, to there. All right. So, yeah, you go home. So your cousins are all PD. But you, when you go up there now, you see the sheriff's office there. And that obviously had to just register as like what the sheriff's, you know, what's the sheriff's office doing here? Yeah. And, and uh, of course, you know, uh, the sheriff's, it was their territory. Right. So that's the reason I was there. I, I still remember as a young kid, uh, late to my girlfriend's house for her birthday, running down the street uh, because I couldn't drive. And I got stopped by a sheriff, a squad car. And they hit me with a spotlight, scared the hell out of me. They said, what are you doing? Where are you running? What do you got in your hand? And uh, they got out of the car immediately. And I thought, uh-oh, what are they going to And I mean, I was scared. And then I told them, I said, I'm, I'm late to my girlfriend's house. It's her birthday. I'm, this is her birthday present. And they, and they looked at each other. 
So where does she live? I said, she lives about half a mile from here. And they said, and you're late? I said, yep. I said, get in the back seat. We'll get you there. <laughs> nice. I, I remember I got in the back seat. They drove. And I'm like, and then they, and then one guy said, okay, hang on. Put the siren on. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Turned the corner. Pulled in front. They said, you're here. And I said, can I go? They said, yeah, get in that party. And I got out. And as they drove off, I, that that was imp- that's another thing that impressed me about police work. Uh, I'll never forget that the way they, the way I felt. Well, that's a, that's when law enforcement could still use discretion and use common sense of dealing <laughs> right. with situations. Right. Yeah. Or and not have to write a memo because why did you have your siren on, deputy? Why did you turn? Your, <laughs> and what are you doing with a sixteen or seventeen right. year old civilian in the back of your car? <laughs> oh, wow. Did you? Oh, that had, that that's cool. That so that was was that your first official ride in a marked police that car? That was the first time I first. Uh, other than my cousin's uh, plain clothes car when I was That's what a I meant, but this is your first marked police first car. First mark at black and white. And, and it's, I remember when I, even when I was sitting in the back seat, I'm looking out the window, thinking both on the one hand, somebody sees me, they're going to think I'm under arrest. But on the other hand, you know, I'm looking, I, I was just kind of proud at the same time. Yeah. So, so I joined LAPD August 1964. Wow, um, and you were making tons of money back oh then. Oh right? man, I, I remember uh, I had I rolling was in the dough. I had a one month old daughter. I was I, I never made so much money in all my life. I was making six hundred and four dollars a month. I did wow. the math. I, I multiplied it by twelve, and I remember I started telling all my high school buddies because I was just three month, three years out of high school. I said I'm making seven thousand dollars a year, and they went nuts. They said, "Oh my God, you're rich!" I said, "Yeah, <laughs> join me." Get into LAPD. Now that's your health care premium each month. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> that's my tax deduction. <laughs> but uh, it was it was a whole different LAPD. Um, in fact, there was only about, it was about 6,200 strong. William H. Parker was still our chief. He was a legend by then. Um, there was, uh, I, I was in the academy with about 102 uh, classmates when we started. Uh, 75 of us graduated. It was only a 12-week academy. Uh, it was a whole different department, a whole different city. You know, if you're ever familiar with LA and you approach the city, you'll see that huge skyline with all those skyscraper buildings. None of them were there, not a single one. Just City Hall. That was the tallest building back then, 27 floors. If you went to the top of that City Hall, you had a 360-degree view of the city. Now, if it wasn't smoggy, um, <laughs> We had police women. They weren't in my academy. They had a separate academy. They did not work a black and white. They worked at the desk, juvenile. Our badges were different. Mine said policeman. Theirs said police women. Hmm. Um, it, uh, in fact, well, all of that changed. Obviously, years later, with what we had, a, we had a consent decree. LAPD did. It's called the Franchon Blake Consent Decree. Police woman who sued the city uh, won the settlement. Uh, LAPD is one of the most stubborn law enforcement agencies you'll ever meet. Nobody tells us what to do. It takes consent decrees to change us. And that hey, Rich, is a huge change. <laughs> tell, tell the folks, too, uh, you know, we know what it is. But, you know, if, if nobody's heard of a consent decree before, what is that effectively? A consent decree is a, is a court order monitored by a judge and usually uh, um, a civilian monitor of the, of the department that imposes uh, changes to prevent civil lawsuits that uh, could be very, very uh, expensive. And it usually entails um, restrictions or changes that are required 
and uh, a time and like period a period of monitoring. Yeah, yeah, a period of time to comply with the changes. Um, one of the hugest ones that maybe I'll get into later is the Rampart um, incident that was a tipping point for the consent decree that we had to we faced back then. But it's uh, monitored by a judge. The judge then uh, over time. Um, declares that it's been reached. The consent decree is then expired, uh, has a tremendous change on the law enforcement. On this one, in particular, the Franchon Bake, it was basically to allow women to get in the black and white, which and get into their academy. It changed our badge. Our, my badge, our badges went from policeman, policewoman to police officer. Um, women then joined men in the same academy. They started working in black and white. They were uh, had the same privileges. My perspective, um, best thing that ever happened to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. I, I might disagree with you because you know what? My wife doesn't forget anything I did 25 years ago. You know, I want her to forget some of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you remember 25 years ago, we were here and you did this. Oh, my God. You should be in investigations. You know? <laughs> yeah, fantastic memories, right? Date, yeah. Even the date and time. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, it goes into the serious injury notebook. Um Hey, so Rich, so you get on, I mean, man, that, that's like you say back in the day, that's where you, no vests, you know, very little equipment, just like a, you know, 38 revolver, pair of handcuffs and, but you guys are going out there and doing stuff. What's your first, uh, what's your first assignment? So you come out of the academy, what are the choices you have? Do you have a choice about where you go or where do they send you? Uh, okay. When I graduated from the academy, uh, generally, and, and even to this day, most recruits or mo most graduates, we don't like the sheriffs. When you graduate from the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, you automatically work the jail. And uh, generally, um, it's solely so the first five years on the job. Deputy sheriffs work the jail before they get into black and white. And LAPD, we go immediately to patrol. We're trained for that. Uh, you graduate. You're assigned a division to do your to finish up your probation. Generally, they try to send you close to home. Um, so I was an exception with my class, as a matter of fact. About two or three days before my graduation, I actually got pulled out of class. Scared the hell out of me. I thought, I thought that they were going to fire me because that happens. The back door opens. Uh, a person walks in. This is during the, the three-month academy. They'll call your name. Everybody holds their breath. The command is bring your hat and your books. And um, so whosever name is called, they get up from the desk grab their books, grab their hat, go out the back door, and we'll never see them again. Um, so uh, that happened up until actually three weeks before we actually graduated. But on this occasion, the back door opened, they called my name, and I thought, I shocked the hell out of me, but they didn't tell me to bring my hat and books. They just said, come inspect, step outside here for a minute. And it was two, um, two guys that didn't look like cops. They took me in a private room. Turned out they worked in narcotics division. Um, and they offered me a special assignment for three months it's called the undercover by program that I would, I would graduate with my class, but I wouldn't exist on the department. They said, we want you to, if you're willing to do it, it's called undercover by, uh, you're going to become a act like you're a heroin addict and you're going to buy heroin from drug dealers in downtown LA and do it for three months. Would you be interested in doing that? And man, I jumped. I got all excited. You know, hey, undercover police work right off the bat. Heck yeah. So um, sure enough, we graduated. And that Monday morning, I was at the old Parker Center and uh, they prepared me and they said, essentially, you're going to be a, a heroin addict. 
We're going to send you to Grand Central Market, a third and Broadway. Um, and uh, they trained me for about four hours before they threw me out the street. And uh, went something like this. <laughs> they said, um, uh, we don't have a car for you. Yeah, so you have to use your own car. Just don't wash it. Don't clean it. Let it get groundy and dirty. Don't shave. Don't cut your hair. Uh, you're going to be alone. You got to be real careful. So don't, you can't wear a gun. Um, so be real. You get burned. Uh, you're no good to us. We'll have to, you'll have to surface and go back to patrol. Uh, they showed me photographs of the heroin dealers at the Grand Central Market. Uh, they said, these are your targets. When you make a heroin buy, get back to Parker Center immediately so you can uh, book it. And uh, that's essentially it. Uh, any questions? I said, no. Four hours later, I found myself leaving Parker Center, walking to Third Broadway, thinking, "What in the heck am I supposed to do?" Fabulous undercover training, four hours. <laughs> yeah, okay, that was Ooh. it. And, uh, and most of the time was spent on writing. How are you going to write reports and log evidence and stuff? So uh, yeah, and I made a lot of buys. I I remember running to Parker Center. I'd come in through the back uh, San Pedro Gate that's not open to the public. I'd go up uh, unmarked doors, three flights of steps. They'd open the door for me. They'd grab my evidence. I'd write a quick report, and then I'd get back out in the street. And three months later, they had the roundup because I'm going to be replaced by another, um, either a young black or Hispanic from the academy that's going to replace me. And uh, they round everybody up. They told me, clean up, shave, put your uniform on. We're picking everybody up that you made buys from. And they brought them in screaming and hollering. And, you know, what do you got me for? This is a setup. And then I walk in in my crispy new uniform. They take a look at me and they just, oh, my God, he's a cop. Did you have any close calls? I mean, you weren't armed, no backup. You're out there on your own. Do you have any close calls? Oh, yeah. I had a lot of close calls. I'll, 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 there's One of the things they trained me to do, and they said, absolutely never, ever, ever go into a room in a hotel off oh, the street. Stop for a minute. Steve, who does that who's the who does that sound like? Who's the advice you gave and he violated it? <laughs> that might be an actor we know. Boyd, what's his name? <laughs> Boy, they oh oh my god. Okay, hold that thought for a second. Have okay. Murph tell you. So they're 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 working with Pedro Pascal and Boyd Holbert, getting them ready to star in, you know, DEA narcos, and they take them to Hogan's Alley and they take them to show them how to do buys. Steve, take it from there. <laughs> yeah. So we they're you know, they go up into Hogan's Alley and, and the deal is go to the front door, buy two ounces of meth. This is a repeat buy. Whatever you do, don't go in the house. So they, you know, Pedro Pascal goes up, he plays Javier. So he goes up and we're all watching and he knocks on the door and the guy, you know, the actor inside, it's his, his job is to try to entice them to come inside where they might kill him or rip it off or whatever. And Pedro says, nah, it's okay. I'll, forget it. We'll do this later. You know? And then the actor's like, okay, okay, here's my, here, here's, here's the package. Give me your money. And so Pedro does it right. Well, Boyd comes up and it's his turn and he's up on the front porch and they're like, come on in, man. We don't want everybody to see our business. And he goes, Okay. <laughs> he goes inside the house. Now we're all in there administratively watching, you know? And so now he's trying to be cool because we're watching him and he's all slouched back on the couch and he's trying to talk smack. And, and this huge actor in the back bedroom comes walking out and he's like, who the hell are you? What are you doing in my house? You know? And he jerks Boyd up, stands him up, pats him down, finds his undercover gun. And you brought a gun in my house. You son of a bitch. I'll go to jail for this. And, you know, and, and then he walks off and Boyd sits back down. He's talking to the other the other bad guy. He's like, man, what's wrong with that guy? Well, about this time, the big guy comes back out and shoots Boyd with his own gun oh. and kills him. Oh. You know, oh. this is all role playing. <laughs> but Boyd falls out in the floor. We thought he shit his pants. I thought he was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> no, but the best part is, Steve, tell him about the poster. 
Yeah, so when we left the academy, they spent a whole week at the DE Academy. And so Friday, the, the AV people had created a poster and it's got both actors' pictures and me and Javier. And they said, you know, we want each of you to sign it. And, you know, you put little, some little saying on there. And under Boyd's, he says, whatever you do, don't go in the house. <laughs> That's great. Oh, well, and I he's think he's a great guy. He's I think we've guy. only talked about this on our Patreon channel, but that was such a good story. Didn't mean to interrupt yours, but I thought, well, what no. a corollary. Because, like you yeah. said, don't go in the house. You go in the house, you're screwed. And that's that was I remember they always emphasize that they say stay on the public sidewalk. Don't you know? And 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 I I had close calls of getting burned. I remember an uncle of mine. I was standing in front of Grand Central Market. I, I looked scroungier in hell. I'm waiting for a guy to show up uh, that I already knew what he looked like. And one of my uncles, um, Uncle Tony, who worked downtown, comes walking towards me. And I look to my right, and he's looking at me like, hey, what? And he, like he wanted to hug me. And the guy is coming on the other in the other direction, my target, who gets to me just at that moment. And I'm looking at my uncle like, stay away from me, you know, trying to make facial expressions. And he caught it at the last second and made a right turn and walked past me like he didn't know me. And I remember wow. talking to him later. But my close call was this. Uh one of my one of my orders was that once I made a heroin buy from a drug dealer, uh, the maximum that I should make from him or her was three. Once you make three buys, cut them loose. They're going to chase you down the street and want to sell you more heroin. But we got them. You got them three times. That's good for court. Um, there was one guy who was probably the biggest dealer in Grand Central Market, and I couldn't get to him. And finally, the way I was able to get to him is one day he was walking through Grand Central Market and I ran up and grabbed him and threw him up against the wall. And I told him I was going to beat him up because because he burned me. He didn't give me heroin. It turned out to be sugar. And he's calming me down. He said, hold it, hold it, hold it. He says, I, who the hell are you? I, I never sold you. And then I said, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were somebody. I started to walk away and it worked. He called me back. He said, Wait, who burned you? And I made up some name and I some and he says, no, I'll give you some good stuff. And uh, let me see your marks. They would always say, let me see your marks. Mm -hmm. and I, see, I, I was going to ask about that. How did you, how did you uh, improvise on that? Or how, what, what, what did you guys do to show your marks? Because if you're a real heroin addict, you're going to have right. tracks. So my story was, I don't use, my girlfriend does. It's for her. And I'm out here, you know, she's, she's uh, strung out. scoring. I'm real, exactly. And they work, you know, they would buy it. And so I never had to show any marks. He sold me, uh, he gave me a, a, some heroin. I gave him the money. Uh, and he said, hey, it's you, it's good stuff. Ask her. She'll like it. Took off, went to Parker Center, booked it, came back and turned out he befriended me and he wanted me to be his bodyguard. He said, hey, I want you. You don't have to just just stay with me. Stay with me. I remember I told my supervisors and they said, yeah, you, you're going to see who he makes buys to uh, witness that. We're going to report that as well. You write it down, you're a witness. And that's good to go. Perfect. And uh, so I started hanging out with him and he was running up and down to Grand Central Market as far as 6th Street. And uh, and again, was don't go in any location that he goes into. Just say, we'll, we'll watch the outside. So finally, one day we're coming and we're going to meet a guy. And uh, he tells me it's going to be real quick. It was right near um, the... Uh, the the train that goes up and down Hill Street, the actually, I'm drawing a blank right now. The, is is it that really steep one? Yeah, the real steep. Uh, they call it Angel Flight or something. Angel or? Flight. That's exactly. Yeah. Well, in those old days, it does it's not there anymore. The original Angel's Flight 
uh, has been moved. But where the original one was, as it goes up that hill, it was right next to a hotel that ran along the flight, the, the, the angel flight. So if you go into the first floor, you're at floor level, right? But as you go up each flight of the hotel, um, you're still pretty much at floor level because it follows the hill, if you can follow my drift. Mm-hmm. So we had to go in this building and we stopped at the at the second floor and uh, and we had to wait. And he knocks on the door and I thought, well, it's near the entrance so I can enter the building, but I just won't go in the room. And he knocked door open. Guy looks at him, looks at me. And uh, he said, he's not here yet. Come inside and wait. And he said, OK, let's go. And he looks at me, he says, come on, let's wait. Let's go inside. We're going to wait for the guy to show up. And my instinct said, uh, no. And I thought, okay, let's do it. And I go in. And now there's three of us, him, myself, and this other guy, whoever he was. And we're waiting. And I'm sitting not by the door like a dummy. I went towards the back. Um, But I sat next to a window. And there's a knock on the door. The door opens and two more guys come in. And they're waiting for the dealer to show up. Before you know it, there's about five or six. And this dealer finally shows up. And as he goes in, they close the door, they look around and they look at, and like, who's this? Tells my informant. guy. <laughs> he said, uh, he's, my, he's my buddy, he's, he's fine. He said, okay, uh, let me see your marks. And, and, and he even said it for me. Well, he doesn't use for his girlfriend. So let's get this gun, I gotta get out of here. And that guy wouldn't buy it. And neither would the rest. So they said, no, nah, we're gonna all take and I'll use, and so are you, he tells me. And they all get up, and they're coming towards me now. And I look out the window, and I'm thinking, there's only one place to go, out that window, and I'm gone. Because the window was open. It wasn't a two-story drop, because it was a slope. So it was probably about a half-story drop. And I literally dove out that window, landed on my feet, took on, I could hear him screaming and hollering, and I ran all the way to Parker Center, uh, I was just about ready to finish my three-month assignment anyway. So when I got to Parker Center, they all started laughing at me. And they said, you know what? You are so damn lucky. You're stupid. You broke, you know, blah, blah, blah. So my last two weeks of undercover by program, I was in the San Fernando Valley hanging out at bars. Uh, I was burned as far as downtown Central mm-hmm. was concerned. So that was the closest call I had. <laughs> oh, you should have read the poster that uh, Boyd Holbrook signed. Don't go in the house. Yeah, don't go in the house. <laughs> don't go in the room. Uh, here, you know, here's the other interesting part of that. Um, so I surface, and uh, I'm not sure what division they're going to send me to. Um, and um, but they told me you're going to work Park uh, Central downtown, and the reason is because you got to go to court a lot. There's the courtroom. So there's a waiting list to get into Central uh, that's around the block because it's very popular. And that's where all the veterans work, the old timers. So when I finally got in a black and white, I worked with 30-year veterans, cops that came on them in the 1930s. So you can imagine how I was trained, what, what I saw. And uh, I take all those stories to the grave with me, I, I promised. <laughs> but I saw a whole different LAPD, footbeats, black and whites. Um, with those 30-year veteran cops. Well, that was the heyday. You know, you think about Hollywood, you've got World War II. I mean, it's just what a time in history for those guys to be on the street, you know, as cops. 
Yeah, and it was it was it was very very different. Obviously, my Sam Brown, I had a thirty-eight caliber revolver, a wooden nightstick, uh, a, a an old ammo pouch that had buttons that you flipped open. Thirty-eight bullets would drop into your hand. Hey, man, I state patrol. We had ammo pouches too. Ammo pouches too. And the other thing too, you guys actually had Sam Browns. You had the strap back no, in the day. Uh, that that they they uh, that was before I got. They they took the strap away. But uh, I had a Widowmaker. That what they call my holsters got the flap over the gun. Yeah. You know, By the, the time you that, get to it, you can't. Yeah, they're going to shoot you. you. It just turns right. you into wife into, into a, a widow. Into a widow. You got to. And and I was so clumsy with it. I would have to flip it open with my right hand, then reach over with my left hand, keep the flap up, and then use my right hand again to draw the gun. And by then, she's a widow. <laughs> oh man. Uh, Salina PD. I started. I started your few years after you. Eighty two. We had our own version. They weren't Widowmakers, but they were the holster that you only had like the strap that went over it and it had the, yes. the and the snap on it. Uh -huh. well, it was always, I mean, you're trying to say I had to unsnap the gun. So most of us guys, we would just unsnap it, bring it around the back and snap it so that we could just get to our, you know, gun right away, you know, pull it out. Well, I got into a foot chase with a juvenile one time at St. John's Military Academy. And I'm running this kid down. I get him. I get him with holster. I get him handcuffed. I go back to my car. And all of a sudden, something feels light. I go down. My gun's missing. Oh. It had bounced out while I was chasing this guy, and I'm like, "Everybody stop!" Now, did you did you feel yourself while you were chasing them a lot lighter afoot and running faster, and then wonder why? No, but I do. You know what I do remember? I do remember at one point I kind of heard a sound. And I'm going, you know, it doesn't sound like footfalls, you know, like us chasing. Yeah, and that's what it was. It bounced. It hit, uh, I think, part of a tree and bounced onto a sidewalk. You know, and it's like, ah, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm just running. I don't know. But then, you know, when you're sitting there checking everything, you get your handcuffs out and then you go, and then you go to put your hand, you know, rest your hand on your gun hip, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, dude, it's, it's missing. So fortunately, nobody ratted me out to the, to, we had street lieutenants, the desk sergeants, you know, it's like nobody ratted me out to the lieutenant, but my gun was scratched up. I had my own, I bought my own gun. Um, you could do that. You still had to use 38 loads, but I had a, uh, Smith and Wesson model 19, 357. Good gun. Okay. You, it got the hell scratched out of it. That that was the bad part about it. You know, it's so good looking. The it scratched the wood, it scratched the blue, and it's like, that's what you get, you know. But they finally went to decent holsters. But man, those I know what you mean. The widowmakers, you know, or the flaps over them, they look cool, but man, they're not functional. No, uh, and and I had the same experience with that you did, but about two years on the job, I was driving and I went on a foot pursuit of a suspect, and I bailed out of the car. I still had my widowmaker. And I remember when I was chasing this guy, I thought, man, I feel like light. I feel like like I've got running shoes on. And I remember I caught him. I hit him in the back of the head. He went flying uh, as he's tumbling. I went to reach for my gun and there's I don't have anything. Just threads are hanging out. No gun. Just uh, and my partner, of course, was right behind me. So we went back to the car and the, the seat belt had caught my holster. And when I jumped out of the car, it completely ripped the Widowmaker holster <laughs> off my Sam Brown. And it was sitting on the front uh, passenger uh, driver's seat when I got back wow. to the car. <laughs> wow. Oh, well, there was another time, though, too. Very quick story, but I had to book a prisoner. And while I'm booking him, because you have to you know, put your weapon up, we get a call. Suicidal suspect armed with a gun. They needed me to go up there. So I go running out to my car. I get up there. And guess what's not in my holster? Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
So the only thing I'm armed with then is the Mini 14 rifle. And they're going, what are you doing with the rifle? Uh, just, it's everything's, I wasn't going to tell anybody at that point. No, I, I'm covering, cover fire, just in case something happens. I got yeah, you covered. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, ain't happening, fellas. But the, anyway, back to our regularly scheduled podcast on you, Rich. So uh, you get out, you get to Central. So what's your, uh, you know, you're in a cushy area. So what happens? Well, I'm, I'm working patrol and uh, I'm working with all these veterans and, 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 and I, you know, notwithstanding things were a lot different and our, and our department was a lot different back then too. the diverse face of our department, uh, mostly Caucasians, as I said before. Um, and, uh, can you, can, you can just call, you can just say white, can't you? Or, or are you still too politically correct? Uh, white, white boys, white boys, <laughs> crackers. Yeah, right. You know, we've been called um, a lot worse, but, uh, you know, you know, uh, just a funny story. I, I told you that, uh, uh, those skyscraper buildings weren't there. They were they were building the foundation, and and I worked with different guys uh, that some would immediately warm up to me, some would even t- give me the time of day. They never let me drive. They always had to make me co- keep books. And I remember this one old timer in particular. Uh, I was working morning watch, and uh, they called his name, and I looked back, and he kind of looked at me and nodded his head. And at the end of roll call, I go up to shake his hand, and he just walked right by me, and we gassed up the car. He's driving. I'm the passenger. I'm thinking, wow, this guy wouldn't even say boo to me. So I kind of just kept my mouth shut like I'm trained. And we got out on San Pedro Street he, and uh, he took off like a bat out of hell. He's going down south on San Pedro all the way to 6th. And I'm thinking we must be on a radio call. He went west on 6th and now he gets into the foundation of these buildings that they're building. And he drives right in through them, going through the pillars and but dust is flying. And we're like within all this construction area. He stops. He jumps out of the car. I jump out. I'm looking around like, what are we going? What do we do? What do we got? And then all of a sudden, he finally talks. He said, "It's time to rest, relax." He takes a Sam Brown off. He throws it in the back seat, and he lies in the back. He said, uh, "Let's just take a little nap. If we get a radio call, I'll hear it. Don't worry about it." And I'm sitting in the front seat thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I'm going to get fired. And um, and sure enough, he's he's he within five minutes, he's out. And I'm sitting in the front passenger seat, hoping we get a call about 10 minutes into it. He says, hey, partner, you got a you got an F.I.? I said, yeah, F.I. card. He said, cover the blue light, cover the green light. It's too bright. So so I cover it. Next thing I know, I hear a tapping on my window, banging. I had fallen asleep. I wake up. All the windows are fogged. I can't even look out the window. And I'm sitting upright and banging on the window. I, I, I clear the window with my hand. And as I'm clearing it, I see sergeant stripes. Oh. You know, somebody with, on their knees with both arms. And I look, and it's a sergeant. And he t- rolled motions for me to roll the window down. I roll it down. My partner's still snoring. And the sergeant said, you know who I am? I said, yes, sir, you're Sergeant Snow. He said, no, 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 no. I'm 1L20. If I get a call, wake me up. And he plops in his car next oh to ours. <laughs> what time of day was this? This was, this was midnight. This was okay. 1 o'clock in the morning. Okay. This graveyard. So here you go from being a kid having to listen to your uncle and, you know, uh, radio number. Now you got to listen to your training officer's radio <laughs> number. You well, haven't come very far. <laughs> His radio number, the sergeant's radio number, that was just, uh, that's the way it was back then. 
Oh man! So, so I I worked I worked uh, I, I wheeled out the, that still exists in LAPD today. Uh, when you finish a, a, your probation at a division, uh, they wheel you out. That means that's going to send you to a different division, whether you want to go or not, just to widen your perspective. So I went from Central downtown to what was called University Division back then, near USC, called Southwest today. Uh, I worked patrol for about a year and a half. Got my feet wet finally. Got some patrol experience. Then uh, they had a huge prostitution problem that they loaned me to the vice squad, vice unit back then, to work prostitutes on weekends. Um, I looked. I was twenty. I was going on twenty. A little bit past twenty-two years of age. I had a two-month, two daughters at home. My marriage uh, was. I was a young married man. Um, during those weekend loans to work the prostitutes, I did such a good job. I, I got permanently assigned to University Vice, and I worked that for the next two years, working bookmaking and uh, gambling and uh, ABC violations, uh, bars, prostitutes. Um, it's, it's supposed to only be an 18-month assignment because of the potential for corruption. I wound up doing it for two years, so I'm approaching three and a half, four years in the job. Uh, they kept me an extra six months because there was such a turnover. I trained new people coming into Vice. And um, so with about four years on the job, I applied for a specialized unit. It was called Intelligence Special. Um, big change in law enforcement. Uh, Anti-Vietnam marches were taking place. The civil rights movement is, uh, is really in full bloom. You also uh, had some domestic terrorism issues yes, in that day. Sibonese Liberation Army, folks like that. Uh, there was worldwide terrorism back then. Actually, we had uh, planes were being hijacked. There were uh, uh, we heard rumblings of our own disruptive groups: Black Panther Party, SLA, Sibonese Liberation Army, Weather Underground, Brown Berets, Black Liberation, uh, a Black Guerrilla Family. Um, I interviewed for. They were going to start a special unit. They were going to pick eight of us. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get picked. Uh, so eight of us started, small unit. Uh, I had a partner named Alex Salazar. And we started to watch what they call the Brown Power Groups, uh, Brown Berets, the Chicano, Chicano Liberation Front. Uh, we started getting bombings in the city of L.A. I studied for sergeant around that time. I made sergeant with about five years on. Um, I thought I was going to go to patrol. By then, there would have been 18 bombings by the Chicano Liberation Front in the city of L.A. that my partner and I, from an intelligence standpoint, were investigating. Um, they asked me to stay, to continue those investigations. I wanted to stay, and I did. So I got the stripes, but I was never a field sergeant. And with about nine years on working uh, intelligence, called public disorder intelligence back then, I made uh, promoted to what's called Detective 3, kind of died and went to heaven. Uh, take-home car, bilingual pay. I was making patrol lieutenant pay. I was starting my own squad by then, an anti-terrorist unit. Um, I took over a unit and created that unit. Uh, the division was then changed by name to anti-terrorist division. And I actually was a D3 working counterterrorism for the next 18 years of my career. Hey, and Rich, when you say D3, I think you mentioned it too. It's like a patrol lieutenant, but D3 is the equivalent of a lieutenant rank. D3 is the equivalent of a patrol lieutenant, pay-wise and everything else. Uh, the only difference is, is um, I'm not on the patrol side wearing a lieutenant with lieutenant bar, uh, bars. If I put a uniform on, it'd be a, 
uh, sergeant stripes with a rocker and a star in the middle of it. Uh, everybody would recognize that as a detective three. And I would actually be, if it was a, a, um, a crime scene, I would actually be in, um, in charge of all, any sergeant, detective two, detective one, uh, or I'd be the same as a patrol lieutenant. And so a D2 and a D1, is a D2 equivalent to, like you said, a sergeant? Yes, a D2 is either a, a detective supervisor or a sergeant rank on the uniform side. Detective one is strictly an investigator. Um, during that time, I, I got involved in planning for the 84 Olympics. We started in 1979. I had a top secret clearance uh, uh, based on my uh, experience working counter-terrorist groups. We worked very closely with federal groups, FBI, uh, DEA, uh, ATF. Uh, William, uh, Bernard, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Daryl Gates was our chief, a living legend. He, he was our chief for about 16 years. Uh, I had a top secret clearance. He had a top secret clearance. Two years leading into the games, uh, the department was very, very good to me. I went to Puerto Rico to watch the Pan American Games in 79 to learn from their security. Went to the Winter Games in Lake Placid. Went to Munich to be briefed and bring back slides of the Munich massacre that occurred. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because that was the 72 Olympics and uh, the Germans learned a lot of, uh, uh, they had a lot of lessons learned from that, you know, in terms of how they deployed, um, uh, which I think they're, they're, is that their elite counterterrorism now is called GSG-9? Yes, and, and they, they, they um, I was part of a subcommittee for terrorism, myself, an FBI agent and a sheriff's uh, lieutenant and we formed the intelligence subcommittee because we had a tremendous threat for terrorism in our games. And um, all the conflict that was going on as we led into 1984, as particularly 1980, 82, 83, uh, countries were at war with each other. Um, the Russians boycotted our games, by the way. But at the same time, uh, we, we developed two villages, actually. Uh, and so that we, we, we completed what we call an antipathy matrix. We wanted to do a study of countries that were at war with each other that would create conflict with the athletes who would go at each other on contact sports. The diverse uh, face of the city, we had all nationalities. Uh, so we were concerned also if a conflict existed between two teams, two countries, we'd have uh, maybe people in the audience going at each other, demonstrators outside. So our plan had to encompass all those concerns. And at the same time, I briefed Daryl Gates every other week for about two years leading up. Uh, I developed a close relationship with him. He, he, uh, I saw a whole different side of Daryl Gates. Um, he became a father image for me because I lost my father when I was, as I said before, in high school. Daryl Gates had a son that was eight years younger than me that was a heroin addict. So we had a lot of father-son type discussions. Games came and went. Um, I almost resigned or quit at that time, actually. I vested a pension. When the 84 Olympics ended, I, I, uh, I hit my 20-year mark on LAPD, and I could retire and get 40% of my salary for the rest of my life. Well, see, there's an accomplishment. You get 40% of a uh, salary that you couldn't afford to live on, you know, <laughs> couldn't afford to live on the regular salary in the first place. So you get 40% of that. Yeah. And uh, so I was going to quit, write a book, terrorism, give talks. Gates called me in his office and uh, 
he said, don't quit, stick around, make Lieutenant. You've been a D three long enough. Uh, so he encouraged me and I took him up on it. Uh, by then I have three children. Uh, my youngest is in their twenties. They're getting ready to get married. Uh, my marriage has fallen apart. I got a divorce. Uh, thought I'd never get married again. Was I going to have any more children if I did? And um, so I studied for lieutenant. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get promoted to lieutenant in May of 1991. Uh, I promoted to lieutenant on LAPD. Um, I was working counterterrorism all that period of time. I was living in a, in a vacuum, so to speak underground. I didn't see all the change that law enforcement, particularly LAPD, was going through. Yeah, Rich, I want to explore that for a second before you get too far, because you were insulated from everything. I mean, you've got a specialized role doing a very specialized thing. And counterterrorism is a world that's, it might be related to law enforcement, but it's kind of its own unique world as well, the threats you look at. And very few cops in that day actually held a top secret clearance. I mean, so you were able to parlay what you got for the winter or the summer Olympics and do this. What for you, did you feel, did you feel at during that time before you actually went back to the road, did you feel like you were an LAPD officer in intelligence or an intelligence officer that just happened to work at LAPD? An intelligence officer that happened to work at LAPD. It took, mm-hmm. it, that's a good way to put it. I, I never really uh, uh, described it that way. As far as the stress and the pressure and the intensity of what was going on in the streets of LA crime-wise, robberies, burglaries, gang problems, things of that nature. I didn't deal with any of that. I, I really did deal with disruptive groups, uh, the Brown Berets, the Black Panther Party, the, the Symbiose Liberation Shootout, Newton Division. Um, I got along great with interagency. We had we had, we had had uh, local, national, even international uh, investigations going on. Uh, my squad was intimately involved, I'll give you an example, with uh, uh, Anastasio Somoza in Nicaragua when he left that country. We had informants in the consul general's office, and uh, we were actually dealing with uh, fundraising that would be happening or, or gun smuggling at the border. So we were we were involved in a lot of that stuff. So the intensity of patrol and what LAPD was dealing with, I didn't really get involved with that. When I became a lieutenant, I, I not only put the uniform on for the first time in 22 years, it was it was a shell shock for me in terms of, man, the change, the technology. The but issues. the bigger question is, did your holster rip off uh, on the seatbelt or did they actually improve the holsters? <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> they improved the Sam Browns. I mean, uh, they had so much equipment on it now. Half of it, I didn't even know how the hell to use it. But uh, my Sam Brown was completely filled by the time I put my uniform on. <laughs> Uh, so I made lieutenant, proud to say, and uh, Daryl Gates, I remember, called me in his office. He said, congratulations, you did it. He hugged me. He gave me the lieutenant badge he wore in 1954. Wow. And uh, and I became a patrol watch commander in Foothill Division. Man. So, and and what year was that? Now, that that's the other part of my story. That was, that was May of 1991. May of 1991. Um, the reason he sent me to Foothill is um, two months before I got promoted to lieutenant, March 3rd, 1991, yep. the Rodney King, Rodney King. occurred. Mm-hmm. And uh, FBI, Christopher Commission, investigating LAPD, 
That video is showing over and over and over again. Uh, the, the department is two months removed from that incident. Um, Gates calls me in, gives me his badge. He said, congratulations. And uh, he sent me to Foothill. Over my head, scared to death. The farthest division from my house at the time. I remember I used to drive to three or four divisions of LAPD just to get to Foothill. How long did it take you to get there? Uh, it, 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 with, with traffic, maybe about a little over an hour. No traffic, uh, 30 minutes. 210 freeway, same freeway Rodney King took when he got off on Osborne in Foothill Division, and that incident occurred. Yeah. Did you have a take-home car then? Uh, yeah, I had a take-home car. I, you know, I've always had a take-home car. When I worked intelligence, they gave me a take-home car. Um, in my 43 years with LAPD, I probably had a take-home car for 40, 40 of those years. Wow. Because well, I no, actually, 41 special. of the years, because you took your own car home after working, uh, buying, making heroin buys. You know? Right, exactly. <laughs> so that was uh, that was my start of uh, really changing my per- perspective, um, my interpretation of police work. Uh, what was the biggest? What was the biggest shock for you going into uniform and showing up, you know, in uniform in Foothill Division? I mean, you'd been around LAPD, you'd been around the department, but like you said, you were more of an intelligence officer that just happened to be at LAPD. What was your mindset like when you now start going back into work and now you're in uniform, you're dealing with people who've been working the streets Mm -hmm. that have more years of experience on the street than you actually do, and now you're the lieutenant? Right. And, you know, and, and in looking at that, and I'm really into leadership. You know, I have my own uh, definition of leadership in terms of it being rank, a- anchored in, in, in uh, virtue, um, loving your people, being a servant leader, uh, forgetting about yourself, uh, loving your people enough to telling them what they need to say and do and things of that nature. So mm-hmm. I think on the one hand, I was over my head. I was scared to death. Uh, I was trying to, you know, what does a lieutenant on LAPD do today? On the other hand, I wasn't... Um, I wasn't uh, impacted by the culture of 20 years of law enforcement in a black and white, uh, that, which is very powerful, the us versus them, the, you know, those types of attitudes. So I was wide open to that. Um, I was smart enough, notwithstanding the, the, the culture shock, uh, when, I, when I got to Foothill, about 150 officers that were previously assigned prior to Rodney King had been moved out administratively transferred, scattered throughout the department. What criteria the department used back then, I don't know, 150 new cops came in, all handpicked. So that's a plus side on one hand. At the same time, I was smart enough that when I went to roll call and I had the night watch roll call in uniform, one of the first things I did, and one of the first things I noticed that hadn't changed since I was, uh, last time I put the uniform on several years before, is that all the veteran cops sat in the back with their cigars and they, they give you that look, you know, that constipated look like that inside skull inspection. Who's this kid coming in here? Who's going to try to change us? Cause they're dealing with the Rodney King incident. Right. Hmm. And the FBI is all over the place. So I think, I don't exactly remember how I said it. I introduced myself. I'm Rich Moraz, a brand new Lieutenant. Um, I've been away from patrol for, I don't know how many years. And I looked at everybody in the back row at once. And I said, and I need your help. I need you to help me run this division because we're going to turn all this stuff around. And it worked. When roll call ended, some of those veterans came up to me 
and they shook the, my hand and they said, you know, glad you said that. And yeah, we are in this thing together. And now we are going to work together to turn this thing around. Well, when Took you the said pressure that, off of me. And when, uh, when you said they sent in 150 new officers, are you talking about not new rookies, but new officers from around LAPD, right? Yes. A new, uh, they, uh, they, from detectives to patrol to hmm. the gang unit, um, to, to do a sweeping change of profile of the officers that work there. Um, some came reluctantly. A lot of them wanted to go. So, so I had a mix of some officers that were shell-shocked, angry, uh, defensive, and others that came in saying, you know, what are we dealing with here? Let's turn this thing around. And see, sometimes I think they forget. I mean, you still serve at the pleasure of the department. I mean, Steve, mm -hmm. they could have pulled you up and moved you somewhere, and they did, too. They said, mm -hmm. hey, guess what? Here's where you're going. You know, and uh, same thing with the state patrol. It no matter what state you're in, the colonel, you know, the superintendent, they can move you anywhere based upon the needs of the patrol. I just, it, it, I get it, but sometimes it's disheartening to think people would fight back so much because this is going to lead in. We're going to start setting context now for talking about uh, what happened at Rampart, you know, and the whole yeah. culture thing. But that's part of the culture too, right there. Is the people who resist it, the people who felt defensive about it. They tend to be the ones that uh, they will go bitch to other people. It will cause problems, you know, and right. they just keep stirring the pot, don't they? Yeah, and it's it's uh you know, and and you're dealing with culture. Culture is culture everything. is powerful. It's everything. I, I I've, I've been involved with agencies that have dealt with their own dirty little secrets, their own little ramparts. Many chiefs try to make change through policy and procedure, drive stuff people down down people's throat, you know, uh, a special order, as we call it, an LAPD, that from this day forward, we shall one, two, three, four, five. And if you do not, six, seven, eight is going to happen. Uh, you know, po policy holds your feet to the fire. It, it, it has its value, but culture will eat policy for lunch. You want to change policy, you want to change a unit, a command, you have to go after values and beliefs, uh, culture, understand the culture and why it exists and how do you counter it? What new culture can be created? That's true. Because peer stuff. pressure, you know, kids think once they get out of school, there's no more peer pressure. Holy cow. And law enforcement. That's yeah, you haven't met a police department or a federal agency. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it's and it, it, it permeates. I, you know, when I when I found out I was going to Foothill, I was single at the time I was divorced. I, had a, I was on a date, had a suit on, and 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 uh, and and I remember when I dropped my date off, I thought I'm going to go to Foothill and check it out. And so I came in through the back door of the division. It was late at night, had a suit on, like I said before, and I didn't have a key to get in the back door, so I had to bang on it. And I saw a record clerk typing, and she looked up and saw me, and I kind of waved at her. I had my ID, and and she looked up, and then she looked down, but she didn't come toward the door. So I banged on the door again, and uh, she kept looking up and looking at me, and then she looked down again. I'm thinking, why won't she come and let me in? And and, and finally, a, a patrol officer came walking by the back door, and I banged on it. And he looked at me, and I showed him my ID card, and he nodded, and he opened the door, and he let me in. And I remember I walked up to her, not upset or anything, and I just introduced myself. I said, oh, I'm Rich Moraz. Um, and I'd like to introduce my, she said, oh, you're the new lieutenant that's coming. I said, yes. And she said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I thought you were an FBI agent. 
Ah. Don't let them in the door. Yeah. Well, but hey, Don't but that's but that's standard practice. That's SOP, no matter they, where you're at. They were investigating. We, FBI was investigating LAPD for Rodney King. <laughs> oh man, so there's there's culture right there, and how yeah, it, but you know how it permeates. <laughs> there's a, but there's also business lessons to this too, because one of the great business strategists, a guy named Peter uh, Drucker. Famously said that too. He said, "Culture eats strategy for breakfast." I mean, it is all about the culture. If you get the culture right, you can mm-hmm. overcome everything. But if you ignore the culture, this is what we're. I mean, this is what we're going to get into. Um, and, and let me preface this by saying too. And Steve, I think you said it too. We had some people say, "Oh, you only talk about the good stuff or the fun stuff," and it's like, "No, we don't." And and Rich, you were so kind to, to agree to come on because this is not an easy thing to talk about. I mean, we're talking about your agency of forty three years. Um, we're talking about, you know, you, you, obviously you love doing the work you did, and it's tough sometimes to talk authentically about, hey, here's the problems we had, but the issue with Rampart was one that is, I know that you teach on and you instruct on a lot, and, and it goes back to some of the things. It's about the values. It's about the culture. So let's start laying the groundwork for how you ended up getting involved in the Rampart investigation um, because that thing became the stuff of legend for Hollywood's training day, Denzel Washington. Uh, they were just talking about before. So many things have been made about this. Um, so let's let's set the stage. What what where do you think the stage started for Rampart, and what kind of things were happening? Okay, and that and that goes to the heart of in, in, of everything. Um, and and I do talk about Rampart. I was there for three years. I was uh, there's two captains in every division of LAPD and it's still the same today. There's a captain three and a captain one, it's just like detective one, two, three. The captain three is like the, as a senior captain, the chief and the, and, and uh, there was 18 divisions back then. So there were 18 captain threes and 18 captain ones. And the captain ones are the brand new captains that go to the command and work with the captain three. Um, so, so Rampart is, um, uh, was, Cut up. Can, of, I inter- can I interrupt uh-huh. you just for a second? Yeah. We didn't cover this in the pre-call. What is a captain two? What do they do? Uh, captain two, generally, everybody that's normally promoted is a captain one. All captain ones go to patrol, mm-hmm. and and they get their feet wet, and and they generally will work with a veteran captain three, and hopefully you're going to get a very strong, experienced one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the promotion from one to a two to a three are field promotions. Uh, there's no test for it. You have to prove yourself. You sink or swim more or less on your own uh, merits. Mm-hmm. Tremendous difference between a one, a two, and a three. Um, w- uh, give you an example. Uh, to to get from two to three may take, if you make it, anywhere from eight to 12 years. Wow. The difference in pay back then between a one and a three was about $40,000 a year. Whoa! Yeah. That's pretty significant. So, so it's big pay, big, big pay, uh, pay difference. So, so, um, so Captain Ones are newly promoted, and uh, and they team up with Captain. Now Captain Twos is when you get promoted from one to a two. Generally, a Captain Two will be in command by himself or herself of a smaller specialized division like traffic. Uh, each traffic bureau, even each traffic bureau in LAPD, uh, there's four of them, are generally like a, a, a staff of about 175 to 200 motor cops, uh, traffic cops. Uh, cops that handle traffic accidents, and then detectives that do follow-up. Narcotics Division of LAPD is a huge command. It's about 350 to 400 strong narcotics citywide. 
And those divisions are generally run by a Captain 3 and a Captain 2. So Captain 2s are uh, generally in, in, in charge of uh, small specialized divisions, or they support a Captain 3 in a larger metropolitan division, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you. that's how the rank structure works. And I was really going to say that what a Captain 2 is, somebody who doesn't want to be a Captain 1 and doesn't want to screw up so they can make a Captain 3. So they're just... They're riding it out, right? Exactly. You know, <laughs> but man, that is a huge pay difference. Uh, but so it takes you, like you said, what it takes you eight to twelve years to go from a captain one to a captain three to, to a cap. That's that went during my day. Yeah. Today, that's changed. Uh, you can go from a captain one to captain three uh, in a year. It's all. It all changed. Um, started with Charlie Beck. We we were under the old system. Um, and and, uh, and and it has changed now. You could you could be assigned a division like Hollenbeck, as I mentioned earlier, where I grew up, and you can be a, you can be a captain one there, and uh, and do such a good job that they'll promote you after about a year to captain three, and you're still you now run that whole division as number one. Wow! Uh, didn't, didn't used to be that way before. Is that common? Uh, uh, it's common now. Yeah, it's it's a big change on LAPD. Hmm. Where where Why? you can go from? Why and did you, they and make then, the change? Conversely, I, I think that they 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 realize that by m- making some potentially very strong, talented, dedicated captain ones have to wait and prove themselves that long, they've lost that talent. I think I think the department now is is closer to looking at every captain they have, or even lieutenant one and twos. And take into consideration where you've worked, how long you've worked it, what your reputation is like. Uh, have you proven yourself? Um, it's obvious you have, because you can very easily be demoted from Captain 3 to Captain 2 and back to Captain 1. You can't take the bars away from you. That's a whole civil service process. Mm-hmm. But Captain 3s that step on it can be, within a week, demoted all the way back to Captain 1 and, and transferred somewhere else. When you're looking at the brass on the collar and the rank, is there any way to, to distinguish a captain one from a captain three? Do they do they have any additional things on their uniform or is everybody just a captain and you have to know that they're a one, two or three? You have to know from the, from a lieutenant and a captain rank. Okay. Um, uh, f- from a, from a, from a detective standpoint, when they put their uniform on, there is a difference uh, because that, of course, detectives go all the way up to detective three. There's no there's no lieutenant detective per se. It's a lieutenant rank that runs helps run the detective. Yeah, D right. So 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 D one uh, will have like uh, uh, rockers, sar- uh, uh, sergeant uh, sergeant stripes. A D two will have like a rocker, sergeant stripes with a rocker. A D three will have sergeant stripes with a rocker with a rocker and a star in the middle of that uh, of that rocker. Yeah, that's a D three. And so there you can tell the difference in the uniform. Well, no, uh, you can tell the difference, too, is because most most detectives hate being in uniform. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, right. I don't want to be yeah. in a uniform. And, and, and in LAPD, even to this day, uh, in total, there's probably about 62 captains. And the department pretty much knows who they are, uh, reputation-wise. Is, is that enough captains? Is that too many? I think I think that's just enough. I think uh, we're still, you know, LAPD is still one of the smallest department. Um, we're we're only about ninety eight hundred strong right now. New York, as an example, has forty five thousand, 
LAPD has 9,800. You compare us to Detroit, Chicago, uh, we're very small. And you got a lot more area to cover too. I mean, oh. you are one spread out, um, you know, city too, having been there. But I mean, you're you're really spread out. It's there's not very many cops per square mile. No, in LA. 40, 463 square miles, population of just over four million. Every black and white that works patrol has two cops in it. We do not have one man units, so that drops the number of patrol cars you can put out. But they're all. Um, um, They'll, you'll have a, a policeman, a policewoman in every black and white. Okay. In every division. Wow. So, that, so that's, that's the way we're structured. That, but, but, you know, that's that's the one thing. It, it works for you. It's it's different for New York. Why? Because they're very landlocked. You can put a lot of people out walking a beat, you know, cover a lot of areas. They've got all their different boroughs and, you know, different precincts. But let's get back to you talking about, like, laying the groundwork. So you're at Foothill. How long are you at Foothill? And what takes you to Rampart? Okay, and, and that's a good question. And, and, and in fact, in looking back again, one of, the, one of the things I was dealing with when I went to patrol is that I turned down my, I, I accepted the sergeant stripes, but I was never a field supervisor. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I was ever going to change any part of my career up to that point, I should have been a field sergeant for maybe two years minimum to get the culture and, and the... Uh, the, the experience to see problems emanating more quickly. Um, I accepted the stripes. I, I remained as a detective and then I became a D3 and I never wanted, wanted to get back to making a sergeant. So, so I was a Lieutenant. I got promoted. I put the free uniform on for the first time in 22 years. I go to Foothill and, and that becomes a quick study for me because of all the tension and everything that was going on in the city at that time, when the riots broke out of the Rondi King incident, I was still at Foothill. But I had some really, really good sergeants to uh, to show me the ropes, so to speak, mm-hmm. how we prepared, how we drilled, uh, what we dealt with in the community. So I hit the ground running and I was at Foothill for about maybe two years, uh, both as a watch commander. And then I went over to the detective side and I became a, the detective lieutenant in Foothill, which it, um, is different than when I worked intelligence. Because in detectives, now I'm, I'm in charge of the follow-up of crime, robberies, burglaries, homicides, juvenile issues. So I'm not also learning now how to do the follow-up investigation from that standpoint, which is valuable. How is the detective lieutenant different than a D3? Uh, lieutenant is in charge. Lieutenant runs the, the, the division, the detective. A D3, um, and that's a good question as well, each division of LAPD to this day is self-sufficient. There's 20 LAPD divisions. Back then there was 18. So each LAPD division is like its own police department. Uh, And that's the way we're structured. So if you walk into any LAPD division, be it Foothill or Hollenbeck or Central or out in the San Fernando Valley, uh, Devonshire division, you're gonna be, you're gonna look at a division that's run by a captain three and a captain one. For all intents and purposes, the three is like the chief of police, and the captain one's like the assistant chief. Each division has uh, its patrol force. And I'll break down Rampart as an example. And as I explain this, the, 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 uh, the amount of officers that are assigned to a given LAPD division is not based on geographic size. It's based on crime. So an example, Foothill back then was 63 square miles. 
Rampart was less than eight square miles. Rampart's population was anywhere from 34 to 36,000 people per square mile. The most densely populated area, second only to Manhattan. Wow. Foothill, um, assignment-wise, had about 375 cops that included patrol, detectives, the gang unit, which was called Crash back then, community resources against street hoodlums, created by Daryl Gates in the mid-1980s to deal with the escalating violence of gang crimes, um, specialized units, community relations uh, officers. They had about 375. When I was at Rampart, less than eight square miles, we had just under 500 police officers assigned to Rampart because of all the crime. And bear in mind that crime was off the chart. This was the cocaine era. Um, uh, so in Rampart, uh, we had about just under 300 patrol officers. Uh, in the patrol side, had three lieutenants, 42 sergeants, uh, and about 275 cops. We had a detective section, which was about 65 of them. The way the D3s worked, that you asked me, that we had detectives were broken down by what we call tables to follow up crime. We had a robbery table, a homicide table, a juvenile table, a burglary table, and so forth. Each of those tables, quote unquote, are run by detective threes. They're experts in their own rights. The homicide table will generally be a D3 that worked his way or her way through a D1, D2, D3. They know everything and anything that has to do with homicides. Within their tables are detective twos, hoping to promote eventually to D3, and detective ones, and a few police officer three ranks that run the tables, run all the follow-up crime. So that's what a D3 does. Um, you also have uh, a community relations section, usually a, a sergeant, maybe a lieutenant, if it's a large division. So, so we're broken down and become our own PDs of, the, of all the 18 divisions. That's, that's generally how it's formed. And so, did you guys okay. also, during that time too, on a weekly basis, I, I know that uh, CompStat got instituted, but I'm not sure when in LAPD it came, I think maybe with Bratton um, out of New York, but did you have your weekly, what they call CompStat or computer statistics meeting to review crime? Good question. Um, and and then when I was at Foothill, and I was there for three years, August of 95 to uh, September, um, August of 1998, CompStat did not exist. It started right at the very end, just a little bit with, uh, with, with uh, Bernard Parks, who was our chief. He called it fast track. They started looking at New York, where Bratton still was. Yeah, and, the CompStat model, him it, and Judy Olney did, yeah. Yes, and they, uh, and they and when, when we sent command officers to New York to look at that process, they came back uh, charged up, said, we got to do the same thing. I know that as I was, when I was a captain my three years at Rampart, I could care less what happened on my borders. I never looked sideways. I could probably count on, if, if, I, if, if I had a map of, of LAPD and all its divisions, you would notice that Rampart, when you go clockwise, its borders are actually touched by five different LAPD divisions, depending on where you are. Um, Northeast Division, Hollenbeck Division, Central Division, Wilshire Division, Hollywood Division. In my three years at Rampart, I could probably count on one hand how many times I talked to a counterpart captain in any one of those divisions about mutual problems, particularly crossover by cops off duty, going into those divisions and doing some crazy stuff. We never even cared about each other. It wasn't until Braddon became chief 
He forced us to turn sideways. Comstat did that. Never happened. In, I wish I would have had that at Rampart. Um, I was a whole different captain as a result of it. It made me more responsible and aware of what was going on beyond my own command. Really uh, revolutionized the way we approach crime on LAPD when Braddon took over. Well, and it was accountability, too. I mean, you were accountability for your area. I mean, you run your area, but if you need resources, you ask for them. But if God help you, if you don't ask for the resources, you don't address the problem because every week you kind of have to unzip your fly, stand in front of everybody else and tell the chief what's going on. Absolutely. And it's a shared responsibility. And you couldn't BS your way through it. No. You could be a – I'll show you how it works. You can be a captain and you're going you're gonna to be asked by the, the whoever the, the terrorist is that's running Comstat. And Brandon, by the way, sat at every comp step. Parks, when he started Fast Track, and we we started getting he he would he started initially and then he never showed up. So, but Brandon sat there. So a captain can say, they, ask a captain. So you got your basic card three A five. When they pull out of the driveway of the station, are they going to turn right or left, and why? So they said, well, they're going to turn right because they got to go to their area. So what crime is happening in their area? And you're going to spell it out like you know it all, right? And uh, so what car is working it right now? Well, my car that's working it right now, and you look at your aide sitting next to you as a captain trying to look good, and your aide will whisper something to you, and you'll say, 3825 is working that area right now, chief. Said, okay. Then the chief will stand up and said, get 3825 on the air. Have them to report to Comstad. We want to ask them some questions. So when they show up, they're going to ask him, do you turn the same thing they asked the captain? And you better hope to hell they repeat what he just said. <laughs> Holy cow. Oh, man, That's it's ruthless, ruthless accountability. Oh, my God. And so, uh, but, but it changed us. It changed us tremendously. But I didn't have that at Rampart. And I, as far as crime was concerned, uh, so, so let me backtrack. I was at Foothill two and a half years. I learned a lot. Um, one of the things that happened to me is I, notwithstanding, I'm never going to get married again and I'm not going to have any more children. I, I met my future wife there. She was one of the 150 that got moved in. Um, I spotted her at roll call. She was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, but let's, let's, let's let the people know too. There is an issue, right? Cause that's the old, what they call, you know, basically a conflict of interest type of thing, supervisor subordinate relationship. So yes, this is on the yeah. QT, isn't it? This is on the QT. Uh, I am I'm her watch commander. Um, uh, I cannot ask her out. I cannot socialize with her. It's a, it's a real conflict of interest. Um, uh, of course, you know, I didn't jump right into it when I saw her. I kind of had to move my way into it, so to speak. Um, she, of course, eventually let me know that she liked me. She had a two-year-old son named Eric. I eventually found up, wound up loving Eric, loving her. Um, we couldn't help ourselves after a few months. So very uh, behind the scenes without making a big scene, letting just a few people know, we started to socialize and date a little bit. Uh, about five months into that, uh, I thought we were doing a pretty damn good job until my captain called me in his office. And I thought, oh, my God, here it goes. I was very close to him. Uh, Tim McBride's his name. I thought he was going to chop my head off. Did they ask and, you to bring your hat and books? No, I, I, <laughs> I, I think I brought my hat and books just in case. <laughs> he sat me down and he looked at me and I Thank God I let him talk first before I was going to say, you got me, didn't you? <laughs> because he would have looked at me like, what? 
he, what, what he called me in his office for was to offer me the detective lieutenant spot down the hall starting that Monday. He said, how would you like to work detectives here at Foothill? And I said, I'd love it. He said, it's yours starting Monday. Uh, and that and solved that, your problem starting Monday, right? Now you're no longer a direct supervisor subordinate relationship. Exactly. As I'm leaving his office, in fact, I turned back. I said, oh, by the way, does that mean I can date uh, police women in patrol? He said, absolutely. He said, just don't date any female detectives. So it was all official now. We could come out. And you know what? That's when she came after me. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, <laughs> That's what guys always say. Yeah, she chased me. You know, yeah, I was playing yeah, hard she, to get, she, you know. She could. She came after me. I asked her to marry me. She said yes. Um, she had been on the job for 10 years. Um, she quit and she stayed at home. Uh, I adopted Eric, her two-year-old, or four-year-old rather. Uh, and uh, we, I realized I wanted to have kids again. Uh, we wasted no time. We had two children together, 13 months apart. Uh, I studied for captain. I was going to stick around now. Uh, brand new, brand new married. Uh, I made captain um, faster than I expected. When the list came out, I came out number two on the list, which meant I was going to be promoted within four days after it came out. Uh, so I, I got promoted to captain in August of 1995. So the point is, I went from a D3, fat and happy, to do that standing on my head for 18 years. I went from a D3 to a lieutenant to a captain in just under four years, a little bit too fast. That's and right. From how good. Yeah, you were having to change your uniforms and your ranks on and those things on a regular basis. Good thing yeah. they were on Velcro, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I got, I, uh, when I went to Rampart, um, of course I was married. Um, I realized when I got assigned that it was going to be one of the most violent, one of the most intense one of the highest profile commands, and not only LAPD, but in the country, as far as we were concerned. At home, I had a one-month-old, a 13-month-old, a four-year-old, a young wife. Uh, more over my head, more scared to death, more stressed out. Uh, so my Rampart story actually starts August of 1995. So, so let's so let's set the groundwork for that too, because you go into this. How much do you know about the people? How much do you know about the area? And had you ever worked ramp anything with Rampart prior to this? Uh, it was a brand new command. I'd never worked Rampart other than uh, I was in the division a few times when I worked vice, when I worked intelligence. Uh, I had nothing to do with the operational side of it. Generally would have to do with uh, stakeouts. Mala um, Savatrucha, which was a relatively new, new gang. Uh, we took a look at them from an intelligence standpoint to see what they were up to. Some of the old time gangs that were part of Rampart. But as far as uh, even my partner, that would be the, my partner for the better part of the next three years, the Captain Three, I didn't even know what he looked like when I went into Rampart. Never worked with him, didn't know him at all. Um, so I went in blind, not knowing what to expect, uh, what was going on. But uh, I hit the ground running pretty much. It was a, uh, we were, my three years at Rampart, we were either number one, or two in the city, and often involved shootings, pursuits, uses of force, homicides, uh, violent crime activity. We had Malasavatrucha. We had 18th Street, which was one of the two of the most violent gangs in the country back then. Uh, it was just overwhelming. 
Is this the same 18th Street that you had some cousins in you were saying earlier? Yes. Yes, as a matter of fact. And, and that gang, when I took over Rampart, was 75 years old. It was a 75-year-old gang. Wow. And, you know, for Mara Salvatore, a lot of people recognize that as MS-13. I mean, they really yes. got a lot of their origins right there in L.A., right? Absolutely. They started in Rampart, Pico Union area, the MacArthur Park area. Yeah. Um, they were only about eight years old. Many of, uh, you know, the uh, families that came from fled, rather, uh, Nicaragua, Salvador, Central America, uh, came into Rampart. Today, MS, obviously, still, they're in 11 different states now, uh, different cliques. They're nationwide. They still exist. They're still very, very violent. But they started in Rampart. And it's easy to find most MS-13 members, their entire face is tatted up, or they've got more tats than, uh, I've never seen that many tats on somebody. Oh, I've I've got some slides that I show that uh, they're scary looking, the tats Mm -hmm. that they have, especially on their faces. Yeah, Mike Tyson's got nothing on them with his little tattoo. But um, so, hey, so start and tell me again, what what uh, month and year did you show up in Rampart? Uh, August of 1995, I showed up. Okay, because what I wanted to say is that's when did you start realizing or what was your indication that there was going to be that something was going to blossom into what ended up being the the entire, you know, this whole Rampart investigation that you were part of? When you got there, what did you see that you thought, I need to work on this? We've got to fix this. As far as the way it blew up three years later, and I obviously blew up with it. uh, Generally, I spent a lot of time talking about two of the most notorious cops that um, that went into what I call the dark side. Rafael Perez, who Denzel Washington portrayed in uh, Training Day. Yep. His partner. the, uh, Perez's uh, partner is portrayed, you know, also in that movie, Nino Durden. Let me just put it this way. When Rampart blew up three years later, I was the first guy to say, how in the hell did that happen? How did I not see it coming? Ralph Al Perez was my go-to guy. He was my best cop. I used to take both Perez and Durden to command briefings on gang problems in each area when we had bureau meetings. And they, when they testified in court, credible, uh, described by prosecuting attorneys, judges, uh, experts in their own rights, uh, at, tr- at uh, briefings, they would just knock people's socks off in terms of 18th Street, Malasava Thrucha, their expertise, strategies in dealing with gangs, uh, on and on and on. I can't tell you how many sergeants came into my office when when it all when Perez was taken down and said, where did I go wrong? He was my go to guy. And all I could tell him at the time was kind of like, just welcome to the club. Um, I have hard. I have thought long and hard about Rampart mistakes that I made uh, where I went wrong um, that I share. And uh, I have a whole different perspective looking back about how it happened, why it happened, and uh, what mistakes I made when I had that command. Before you get into that, let me ask you, when that shooting happened between uh, Kevin Gaines, you know, when he was killed by uh, Frank Liga, did that did did any red flags surface from that? Because they were, um, uh, Gaines was a crash officer. He was, you know, part of the crash unit, right? How involved in that shooting were you? Uh, I was not. That was a different division. 
Okay. The Kevin, the Kevin Gaines, Frank Liga sh- shooting, which I talk about when I give my, my talk about what was going on. They, they, that was part of that whole era that was going on. Kevin Gaines um, was a patrol officer that worked Pacific division. He was a seven year veteran. He was part of a group that uh, got involved off duty with death row records. Uh, this was during the, the, uh, the hip hop era. This was right. We're, we're talking 1997. I've been at Rampart for two years. Okay. Uh, Frank Laga was a narcotic uh, officer, very experienced. One of the, to this day, he holds some of the biggest arrests, caches in the history of LAPD. He was working uh, 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 Hollywood field enforcement section. It was a narcotic group. They were actually in North Hollywood division conducting a follow-up investigation when uh, the case fell through the cracks, so to speak. And all those guys met in a parking lot, decided to go back to Hollywood Station and re- decide what they're going to do next. Frank Lager didn't look like a cop, obviously. Big Fu Manchu mustache, long hair. Uh, he was kind of minding his own business when he was driving down uh, Ventura Boulevard when he encountered Kevin Gaines. Kevin Gaines, on the other hand, was uh, very intimately involved with death row records. Uh, security details with other cops, not only from LAPD, but at, uh, Inglewood PD, Compton PD, Sheriff's Department. And when he encountered uh, Frank Liga on that day, it was actually March 18th, 1997. He was driving a green Montero that was registered to Sharitha Knight. She was the estranged wife of Suge Knight. He got into an altercation verbally with uh, Frank Liga who didn't know he was an off-duty cop, uh, screaming at each other. Kevin Gaines, uh, using profanity, said, you know, I'm going to cap you, pull over, blah, blah, blah. Of course, Kevin Gaines didn't know that Frank Liga was a cop either. Uh, Liga tried to refuse it. Uh, Short and long of it, uh, they wound up, uh, Liga was so concerned for his safety when he was having this verbal confrontation with with, uh, Kevin Gaines that he uh, hit his foot mic and described the car, described Gaines, told units to head back. He's got a guy that threatened to shoot him. He said, he's going to cat me. I may need backup. I'm going to try to get rid of him, lose him. It escalated. He couldn't shake Gaines, who kept chasing him in the green Montero. Um, So concerned was Frank Liga that he actually undid his seatbelt and holstered his weapon and put it on his left thigh on the driver's side uh, while keeping an eye on Gaines. Uh, finally, they reached an intersection where when Lega looked to his left, Gaines had armed himself with a stainless steel nine millimeter, pointed it at Lega. Lega looked, looking to his left, saw the weapon, and in immediate defense of his life, came up with his weapon and fired twice, striking Gaines, who accelerated into a U-turn and parked into a parking lot, mom-pop gas station. Lega hit his foot mic. Um, requested a backup RA unit supervisor reported he'd been involved in an officer involved shooting. Uh, he said, I'm going after him, which he did, uh, exited his vehicle cautiously approaching Kevin Gaines, green Montero. Uh, in fact, two California patrolmen uh, heard the shots. Uh, they were in the back of the market as they came forward. They saw Frank Liga and drew down on him. Didn't realize he was an off duty cop. Liga had his LAPD badge on a chain inside his t-shirt lifted it out, said, I'm LAPD. They believed him. They approached the vehicle cautiously. Kevin Gaines subsequently wound up uh, 
uh, dying in the car in the front right front floorboard of the vehicle. They found a stainless steel nine millimeter. Um, LAPD, when you get involved in a shooting, you're immediately removed from the scene. You're put on ice, prepared to come back and do a walkthrough. You're not allowed to talk to really anybody. So by the time they got to Gaines at North Hollywood Police Station, his supervisor, his D3, walked in and said, uh, suspect is dead. And Liga said, I figured he was. Do we know who he is? His D3 actually told him, uh, you're going to have to set this one up. He's one of ours. Kevin Gaines, LAPD. Um, and that's when we found out and went from there. Uh, Kevin Gaines, when he was uh, uh, subsequently, when they did the investigation, uh, he had seven major credit cards from Death Row Records in his wallet. He had receipts totaling anywhere from uh, $900 to $1,000 from Monty's Steakhouse, a known hangout for Death Row Records. Uh, he was involved in actually hiring off-duty cops to work for Death Row Records during some of their events. Nine days before, at the Peterson Automobile Museum, Biggie Smalls was killed, allegedly by off-duty cops that worked for Death Row Records. We were just nine days removed from that. So all of this was going on beyond Rampart within law enforcement in this greater Los Angeles area that involved uh, Death Row Records, Bad Boy Entertainment, which Biggie Smalls was involved with, East Coast, West Coast. Uh, all this was starting to bubble over during this whole quote-unquote Rampart era. So what are the what happened to finally bring this to a head to where you were involved, like you said, there has to be a some kind of an incident that finally makes it boil over to where it gets the attention, whether it's the feds or LAPD or something happens, right? So what walk us through that. What does okay. it take to get to the point to where it boils over? And now, now something has happened we got going on and it triggers everything to follow. Okay. Um, and, and that's, that's a good question. And it's, and it's a lengthy story. It, 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 there's a lot of things that went on um, that eventually blew up as, as, as I would call it. Um, and at, at Ram, just to take Rampart division alone, a violent division, a lot of gangs, 60 total, language barrier, 60% of people can't speak English. Um, I have a, a gang unit called Crash. Every division of Valley PD has one. Everybody has their hands full with, it's the uh, like I said before, with all the violence. I'll give you an example. Uh, my first month alone at Rampart, March 1995, we had 20 homicides. We ended the year in Rampart alone with 104 homicides. Mm-hmm. Um, to put those numbers in, in perspective, in that less than eight square mile command, 104 homicides. Um, in fact, uh, two years before, Rampart had 164 homicides. LAPD ended the year 2019 citywide with a total of 251 homicides. Citywide. We ended last year with 345. That was the biggest we've had. Um, so so you so just homicides alone were off the chart citywide, all the all the all the divisions. How much of it in, in Rampart was gang-related? Uh, about 60% of it was gang-related. And what was some of the other stuff? Drug-related? Uh, drugs, we, we, uh, drugs, non-gang-related, drug drug sales. Uh, we didn't have a homeless issues per se. Uh, we had intersections at Rampart back then that were nationally famous for drug sales. People would come into LAX, go to Rampart, 
to get make their connection and then get out of town. Um, so we, uh, we had some of the, I had 21 officer involved shootings in my three years that I was at Rampart. And it wasn't just the crash unit that a lot of people think. I had detectives get involved in shootings, senior lead officers, community officers, um, uh, gang, the, the vice unit got involved in a Halasis shooting with a carload of Temple Street gang members that thought that they were Temple Street, that they were gang members in their territory. Uh, shooting where they had to bail out on, on the passenger side of the front and back seat and return gunfire. A couple of people were shot. So uh, I had uh, sergeants who were involved in officer-involved shootings, guns, violence, uh, things that would tear your heart out. Uh, there were so many shootings in Rampart with uh, drive-bys and rounds flying and air units and perimeters uh, that we knew that if you lived in the heart and soul of Rampart and you were a young family with young kids and you lived in the first or second floor of any one of those apartments in the heart and soul of the violence, when they put their small children to bed at night, they wouldn't put them to bed at night in the bedroom because a stray round can come flying in through a window or a wall. They would put their kids to bed at night in the bathroom, in the bathtub, because it's insulated by several walls and the bathtub itself would serve to protect their kids. Had a mother cooking in the kitchen, a first floor of one of those apartments, heard gunshots coming in her direction. She panics. She drops what she's doing. She knows her mijo is a gang member. He's out front. She makes a beeline to the living room window to make sure he's okay while the rounds are still flying. And not only is he taken out, so is she. She dies in the living room of her own apartment with a headshot. Um, oh so my you God. Had, I had a young, young family. And, and, and just to put this in perspective again, the leadership challenge that we were facing. Young family stops at a 7-Eleven. It's dusk. It's just getting dark. They park their car. They go in the in in the 7-Eleven. 11-year-old daughter is in the back seat with a dome light on doing her homework. Two rival gangs show up at each end of the strip mall, could care less who gets caught in the crossfire. And that beautiful little 11-year-old girl takes a headshot and a chest shot, and she dies in the back seat of her car. Uh, the outrage, the fear, the, 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 the demand for justice... Um, young, impressionable cops wanting to save that community who is whispering in their ears, save us, we'll look the other way. The message is the ends can justify the means. We're constantly screaming and hollering. Those, those means can never justify those ends. So, so all that stuff um, is happening in, in, a, in a division like Rampart. And I got a crash unit that is... Uh, just wanting to do an exorcism of all these gang members. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so we have to hold them back, so to speak. So every time you turn around, there's violence, there's murders, uh, there's retaliation murders we're trying to, to prevent. Um, sometimes people will say, you know, uh, there was a demand by the command staff for numbers. And that's totally off base. Uh, we didn't need any commands for that. We had our hands full just dealing with all the violence and the pain and the homicides and the gang violence that was occurring and that less than eight square mile command. And I, I can't imagine that the uh, the community outrage at those type of shootings, you probably had people beating down your door at the station, didn't you? Oh, the, I not only beating down my door, demanding, they weren't even telling us how to handle gangs, uh, mm -hmm. mostly in Spanish because of that language barrier. Uh, they would say to me, uh, Capitan, 
you can't, you, you cops in this country, you don't know how to deal with gangs. Where we come from, Nicaragua, El Salvador, the cops know how to deal with gangs. They would say, you got to take them down to the alley river. You got to have a little conversation with them, you know, like slap them around a little bit. When you bring them back, don't drop them off in their own gang territory. Drop them off in another gang's territory. Make them walk to two or three gangs. They would, they, they would say to me, mijo, let the other gangs take care of your problems for you. Mm-hmm. And I was constantly saying, we don't operate that way in this country. We have what's called due process. You can imagine young, impressionable cops who can't help but love that community to see all that violence and the community is saying, save us. We'll look the other way. Mm-hmm. Tremendous leadership challenge. Uh, and some, unfortunately, a handful started by crossing the line to save that community. And once they got into that dark side, it got worse and worse into corruption, perjury, throwdown, bad shootings, and Bank robbery still in evidence. Oh, oh. Because they and, thought they were saving the community, right? I mean, yeah. this you're describing, I mean, anybody listening to this that doesn't know what the preface is for this, sounds like you're describing a war zone in Afghanistan or, mm-hmm. you know, um, Iraq. You know, I mean, what you're describing to me sounds like, um, I mean, it sounds like a war zone. It, it, it's a, it, it was like a war zone. The, 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 the constant heartbreak, murders, gangs community that you you cannot help but love this community a mom and dad working two and three jobs uh, the work ethic that they had as a family uh, so it was just a, a, a tremendous tremendous challenge and then you had a handful when i when i talked that denzel washington story of course it's way out in left field you know the, the they exaggerated but, wait a but, minute hollywood is in L.A., it's in California. You, are you telling me Hollywood doesn't portray everything accurately with <laughs> LAPD right there? Hey, Steve, hey. <laughs> answer that one. <laughs> hey, just you know this better than anybody, Rich. Hollywood has <laughs> never let the facts get in the way of a good story, have they? No, no. You know, hey. the, the, un, the undercover car that Denzel Washington drove in that movie, mm-hmm. uh, the, the letters are ORP, Officer Ralph Al Perez, and the numbers are the month and the year that Perez was born. That's how crazy they get. Oh my gosh. Hey, but didn't they, you know, Steve and I were talking about this beforehand too. Didn't they have to get, when these films and these, you know, movies make the, they make these things, don't they have to get permission from LAPD to use their insignia, their badges and stuff like that? Uh, they, they do. And they have it, you know, once they're, they're, they're approved and they're, or, or else there'll be just a little bit of a change on the, on the, on the, uh, the design of the bash badge rather uh that 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 throws that out you know in terms of but once once they get the the trademark and they can do it others can follow suit with that so Can't, why would lapd give permission for a movie like training day i i get it you know that they're trying to make a movie but why would they cooperate or even help make a movie like that well we we didn't really help them they might have a technical advisor that's an off-duty cop from lapd uh but the way we cut, we can control that is any off-duty job that any LAPD officer desires to partake in requires a work permit. It has to be approved by the command and by bureau. And there's minimums. There's you can't uh, there's you can't work off-duty in uniform except very few select assignments. You can't work more than 20 hours a month off-duty, no matter what you're doing. If it, even if you're an usher in a church. Uh, it's controlled so that you don't go overboard. So any off-duty officer that's working any off-duty job 
the department is, has to be aware of it. It has to be approved at different levels. And there's minimums uh, that can be had in doing that. Of course, many those guys that worked off duty for death row records probably wasn't even aware of it. But uh, we do try to control that to this day. All right. Well, that's that's what I was getting at, too, because, I mean, it's like I just that was more curiosity is about why they would allow that, because we mentioned training day. But let's go back into the, you know, getting back into the story. So then you've got okay. all of these things going on. You know, you've got people initially they started doing it for the right reasons, but then it became easier to cross the line when you could justify it by saying it's for the right reason. It's for the community. I'm just trying to help them. I plan a little piece of evidence here. It's all for the greater good. It's a corruption doesn't happen in a vacuum. People don't wake up one day and go into the dark side. It happens incrementally. Um, a slow but incremental violation of virtue and uh, honor and duty and rationalization. You know, we're doing it for the noble cause. We're doing it for the greater good. The community is asking us to protect them. You know, how we start to rationalize our indiscretions. Um, it, the best example I give is the frog in the boiling pot of water. And, and that includes uh, dealing with it, too, by the way. So you put a frog in a bottom. You know how that story goes. The frog will jump right out. You put that same frog, and that frog could be Rampart Division. And that same pot of water, which is the environment, Rampart Division as a whole, that frog is Rampart Cops for all intents and purposes. And you slowly but incrementally start to turn that heat up. That, uh, that frog will become inured. To that heat, that heat will become white noise to that frog. And then that frog will boil to death. And when that frog is croaking, it'll say, how in the hell did that happen? Mm. How did I not see it coming? Yeah. Uh, so here I am in a pot of boiling water and I didn't see it. Well, you know, my example, when we talked earlier, I said, it's like, it's the equivalent of like, if we went out to McDonald's and ate a Big Mac and the next day we gained 50 pounds, people would go, whoa, can't do that, you know, but it's this, it's this incremental thing. It's a, it's a little bit today. It's a little bit tomorrow. Nobody notices the weight gain over time, you know, in increments, you know, it's just these small degrees. And so moving, if I moved you 10 feet in a second, you'd notice that. But if I yeah. spent an hour moving you 10 feet, you just get used to it. To your point, it's just that's why people don't understand sometimes. They say, well, you guys are just corrupted. It's the way you're always been. No, sometimes you don't even know you've gotten that far until somebody changes your frame of reference. Exactly. And from a police leadership supervisory standpoint, based particularly today's and, and the potential for Rampart, as far as I'm concerned, is 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 very, very prominent because of the of the legitimacy crisis that law enforcement is facing where cops are fed up. Uh, burned out, depolicing, disengaging. You know, the, um, I, I, I've been involved in law enforcement for 56 years, and I've seen the community, the love-hate uh, relationship we have with the community and how cops get caught in the middle uh, in terms of disillusionment or depolicing or disengaging. If they don't care, I don't care. Uh, and that is a tremendous challenge of leadership that falls right on the shoulders, first and foremost, of sergeants in any law enforcement agency to sit and talk and deal with that with his officers. And unfortunately, many of those same sergeants are cut up with the same uh, fed up attitude. So it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It, it, it happens incrementally. And uh, and I generally will take Ralphal Perez and Nino Jordan as an example of that and, 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 and go down, because I'm doing it in retrospect, actually. And, and you asked me, how did it all blow up? 
And, and, and they were in the heart and soul of the particular Rafael Perez. Hey, players, that's the end of part one with Captain Rich Mraz and the LAPD Rampart scandal. As you can see, Rich is putting it all on the table. He's putting it out there for everybody to see. He's being transparent, authentic, and we've got a lot more stuff coming up in part two. In the meantime, go visit our webpage, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. You're going to see a lot of pictures from Rich and his time on the LAPD that go with this episode. Also, visit us on the socials at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, and go hit us up at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We've got a new segment out called 911, What's Your Emergency? Got a lot of great feedback about that. I surprise Murph with a 911 call, see if he can figure it out, and then we walk through the facts of the case. So go over to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's going to be a ton of fun. All right, guys, stay tuned. Part two, Captain Rich Moraz and the LAPD Rampart scandal coming out Thursday. Thursday.